Hello again, Justin Bishop here. So if you have listened to our most recent episode on Once Upon a Time in China, then you know that we have just announced our next long-form series. Uh, up next, we're going to be spending about seven episodes covering the career of David Fincher, the director behind films such as Fight Club, Seven, and The Social Network. But of course, he began his career with the ill-fated Alien 3. Now, there is a lot of backstory for Alien 3, as it was a movie that was in development hell for years before Fincher ever came on board. It's a film that went through multiple concepts, multiple writers, multiple directors, all of which, of course, we will be covering in our next episode. But a lot of the backstory for Alien 3 is directly related to the first two films in the Alien franchise, especially since Walter Hill and his co-producers at Brandywine Productions have been the caretakers of the Alien property ever since Walter Hill was hired to work on the original film. So we're going to give you a little Cinema Shock Rewind episode and republish our episode on Alien, the original Alien, which was originally released back in April of 2021 as part of a series on the career of Dan O'Bannon. Now, at the time, we were um, we were naively trying to keep our episodes a little bit shorter. We quickly learned that that wasn't ever going to be possible, but uh, at the time, we thought we could, so we opted to cut the story of Alien into two episodes. It was actually released as Alien Episode 1 and Alien Episode 2, both covering one film. So for this Cinema Shock Rewind release, we've decided to stitch those two episodes together into a single, uh, very long episode. Uh, which gets into all the nitty-gritty details about the production of that film. So whether you're a longtime listener who just wants a refresher on the story of Alien's production, or you're a new listener who didn't hear it at the time that it was released, we're giving you the full story here on Ridley Scott's Alien, and I really do think that hearing this story will enhance your enjoyment of our upcoming Alien 3 episode. And no, before you ask, we did not forget about Mr. Cameron. We will be releasing a rewind of our coverage on the second film in the franchise, aliens in just a few more days or you know you can just scroll back real far on your podcast feed and find it either way we highly recommend checking it out so that's enough yapping from me without further ado here's our throwback episode on ridley scott's alien how's that for a slice of fried gold are you think this is a fucking costume this is a way of life i'll be back a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. He's alive! He's alive! He's alive! I guess everyone's a dad of one good scare. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock, a podcast dedicated to the history and evolution of cult and genre movies. I'm Gary Horde. Hey, I'm Justin Bishop, and we're joined today by our best friend, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Hey, guys. <laughs> hey, Thanks for having me. <laughs> no, I don't know why I felt like introducting you that way. Our but, hetero you know. life mate, Todd Aww, Davis. Oh, thanks. <laughs> oh, man, guys, wrap it in. Strap it in. Is that, strap, is that the way that phrase goes? I don't know what you were going for, honestly. It's, stra <laughs> it's strap it. It's strap it on. Strap it on, strap guys. It on. We're in. We're in for the long run on this one. We're talking about one of the biggest movies we've ever talked about. Uh, this is on up there with maybe Night of the Living Dead and and Texas Chainsaw Massacre as one of the most iconic films that we've talked about on the show so far. Oh, yeah, yeah so so part two. We're pegging those series. ear holes today, baby. 
That's right. Our series on Dan O'Bannon, which I have renamed, by the way, is no longer Hollywood Secret Weapon because I felt like that was an inappropriate title. It never really sat well with me because here's the thing. He would be considered Hollywood's secret weapon if Hollywood, you know, were properly using his talents, right? Uh, He was like the guy they brought in, but he's the guy that they kind of ignored. Dan O'Bannon was. He never really got his due, which is why we're trying to give him his due. So I've renamed the series The Unsung Legacy of Dan O'Bannon. I think that's a little more accurate, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and it's a little more poetic. You know, I like it. Thanks, Todd. Yeah, I like it too. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate your approval. I just, but Todd, I Todd's approval, approval is more important. Well, um, <laughs> Let's be honest. Todd's approval has never been important here. <laughs> that is a bummer. Todd, you're an important aspect of this show, Aww, whether you believe it or not. That's sweet of you to say. Thank you. Otherwise, it's just me and Gary being nerds the whole time. <laughs> Talk, but we need we need someone to bounce off of, someone that's going to challenge our views sometimes. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll be that guy. <laughs> All right, so let's get into it, guys. So uh, last week we talked about Dark Star, uh, John Carpenter's debut film, also Dan O'Bannon's debut film. So during the filming of that film of dark star before their partnership had been disbanded as we discussed in detail last week dana bannon and john carpenter actually talked about making a similar sci-fi film uh, a story set within a spaceship where a crew discovers an alien threat inspired just like kind of like dark star was by the thing from another world a film that they both loved growing up and it was as dan o'bannon described this project uh, as they kind of discussed it he said it was like the same story but in a different light it was this, a similar concept, but he wanted to make people scared instead of make people laugh. And O'Bannon actually worked on it. He wrote the first act of the screenplay. And the plan was that this time O'Bannon would be the director. Of course, none of this happened after they they essentially, the, the band broke up. <laughs> the, the Carpenter-O'Bannon band broke up. And, and Carpenter actually said, hey, you can, you, you just take this, you know. But that half-finished screenplay kind of stuck, O'Bannon kind of stuck held on to it, you know, and it's one that he would later rework with a writer named Ron Chousset and went through several iterations and had multiple titles along the way. But when it was finally completed and released in 1979, it would be known as simply Alien. Some of you may have figured out we're not home yet. We're only halfway there. Mother's intercepted a transmission of unknown origin. You got us up to check it out human oh, no. the next what happened to Kane? something has attached itself to him we have to get him to the infirmary right away what the hell is that? oh we gotta get it off him he's got a wonderful defense mechanism you don't dare kill it. It's got to be a way of killing it. Do you don't understand what you're dealing with, doing. Perfect. Logos.
There's no fun story that I could find, and maybe you did different on why it suddenly was called Alien instead of Star Beast, which I know you're going to bring up. Like, you know, just just so as we get to that, people know it. Just seems like he just saw Alien a bunch in his script from everything that's I can That's exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah, they, just a, got, they just get they were looking at the script, and first of all, Star Beast is a dumb name. Uh, it sounds like a Roger Corman movie, which this almost does, was yeah i was just kind of it's <laughs> but some some sort of offshoot of D or something yeah but yeah basically o'bannon just they were going over their screenplay and just kept seeing the word alien 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 so they're like hey this is a noun and it's an adjective you know let's just and for somehow no movie had ever been called just alien so that's yeah that's where it came from and so o'bannon had never really been thrilled with that beach ball alien from dark star even though you know it was funny uh, it was a, it was a funny gag. That's why they put it in the film to begin with, because they saw somebody walking with a beach ball and the idea of that being the alien made them laugh. <laughs> but the experience really left him with wanting to do an alien that looked real. So meanwhile, around the same time, Ronald Shusette, who was a fellow burgeoning screenwriter, he was working on a project of his own. He had optioned a Philip K. Dick short story called We Can Remember It For You Wholesale a story that became the basis for a film that would eventually be released as Total Recall yeah. about a decade and a half later. So Shusette had been, he had, he had actually seen Dark Star. And I think I think Shusette was a student at UCLA. Not He wasn't at USC, but he was a film student at UCLA, I believe. Uh, but he had seen Dark Star and he had been impressed with it. So he contacted O'Bannon, hoping that the two of them could one day collaborate. And they started talking in between the two projects, between, you know, O'Bannon's alien, you know, killer alien screenplay and the Total Recall screenplay. They eventually chose to work on O'Bannon's idea because they thought it would be cheaper and easier to produce. Uh, yeah, get that low-hanging fruit while you can. So at that point, O'Bannon had about uh, 29 pages of, of screenplay written. And it was actually called Memory at the time, which I, I don't know why it was called Memory. I could not find any information on what that word had to do with the screenplay. Uh, maybe because the, it goes back to his father taking Polaroids in the woods. <laughs> maybe. <of ETs>. Maybe. <laughs> uh, but those 29 pages contained what would eventually become the opening scenes of Alien. You had a crew of astronauts that were awakened from cryosleep to find out that their voyage had been interrupted because they'd received a signal from a nearby mysterious planetoid. So they investigate, and when they, they go down to the surface, their ship breaks down, and that was kind of the extent of it. Uh, he didn't really have a clear idea of who or what the actual alien threat was going to be at this point. But before he could really flesh this idea out any further, O'Bannon accepted the offer to go work on uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune, which is a project that would take him to Paris for six months. We discussed that a little bit last week. Yeah. And as we discussed last week, that project eventually fell through, but it did introduce O'Bannon to several artists who would influence his later work, uh, namely Chris Foss, uh, Jean Girard, a.k.a. Mobius, and most notably probably as H.R. Giger. Yeah, as, as, as tough a experience as that probably was for him, it probably made up for it on the back end just with all the networking. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he would work with uh, several of these artists again over the course of his career. So H.R. Giger, a little bit of background on this guy if you're not aware. He likes penises. He does. He uh, does not like snakes and does not like worms, though. Is terrified of them. <laughs> he is. He talks about it in interviews. It's very weird because he's a scary looking dude. Looks like a fucking vampire. Uh, <laughs> but he, ta he talks about like worms. Just he's got like a 
intense fear of them. I, don't I remember know. I, very, I was watching a what a guy. Yeah, one of the commentaries John Hurt talks about uh, seeing him. He's like he's very goth. He's like he just even at the time, like he, he's you know this is more accepted now, but at the time it was really weird. He was like he never knew anybody except for like one other person, and then he met Giger and his girlfriend that were always as wearing as much black as possible yeah. at all yeah. times. Very pale skin, kind of like almost like dark rings around his eyes. Like he's part of the Adams family or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so HR Giger was born in Chur, Switzerland in 1940. And he used those early phobias of snakes and worms actually as inspiration for his artwork. So even when he was a young like up and coming artist, he was using the idea of fear as an inspiration for art. And he moved to Zurich in 1962 and he went to school there. He studied architecture and industrial design, but by 1964, he was uh, creating his first like artwork, his first painting sculptures, things like that. They were mostly ink drawings and oil paintings at the time. And that quickly led to a solo show. He had his first solo show in 1966. But a little while after that, he discovered the airbrush. And along with it, he kind of discovered his own unique freehand painting style, creating these dark, disturbing, and often highly sexualized biomechanical landscapes that he would become known for. Then after uh, his longtime girlfriend, uh, after she died uh, by suicide in 1975, his work took an even darker turn. Uh, these he had you know these grotesque monsters with skeletal bodies giant phallic heads and he often rendered them in monochromatic colors lots of grays and blacks very little if any color in any of Giger's work now, over the course of his career Giger published more than 20 books of artwork uh, he created sculptures he designed an entire bar there's a place called the Giger bar in Tokyo and opened his own museum uh, in the late 90s. This was fascinating. Go look at pictures of it. But he opened his own museum, I think about 1998. It was housed inside of a castle in the medieval city of Gruyere, Switzerland. So he bought an old medieval castle and turned it into the Giger Museum. Of course awesome. he did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and his probably his most famous book was published in 1977, it's called Necronomicon, and it was that book that served as the main inspiration for his eventual work on Alien. You hear, you know, the background of what influenced his art. I kind of wish he'd gotten more into, I mean, I know he did some work in the comics industry, but I really wish he'd gotten hooked up with a couple of other uh, writers like... Um, yeah, he doesn't seem you know. like the, the um, type to do that type of creative work, like storytelling work yeah. to me. He just yeah, seems like true. he wants to create uh, images that invoke feelings yeah. in people. Yeah, he's all about the atmosphere and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, although it would have been really cool to see him work with like James Obar, Steve Niles, uh, yeah. you know, some of those guys. That, that, I bet comics couldn't afford him either because yeah yeah, yeah you're probably right <laughs> <laughs> he seems to know his worth and you know he also worked yeah. at very large scale oh, because wow. he's airbrushing most of the time oh that's so, cool so the way dan o'bannon put it he, he said his paintings had a profound effect on me i'd never seen anything that was quite as horrible and at the same time as beautiful as his work and so i ended up writing a script about a giger monster nice. he was fascinated by giger's work and after meeting him he found that the two of them, they shared a mutual appreciation for H.P. Lovecraft. Like uh, O'Bannon, much like John Carpenter, grew up loving and idolizing H.P. Lovecraft. They, they, they both had this, and same with Giger, they both had this fascination with kind of fear of the unknown, which is a staple in Lovecraft's work. 
Mm. Yeah, and uh, I I even read in some places uh, from from O'Bannon that they they had the idea with uh, with. I don't know why I can't talk, but like Cthulhu being a big source too, because they just, they like the idea of the, uh, this thing that's like trapped and like just waiting to be unleashed. And so the alien kind of got some inspiration from that, that just, uh, you know, not, not, not necessarily the look of Cthulhu, but just Cthulhu's story as he submerged at the bottom of the sea and you never see him, but if he ever escapes, then that's like the dread of mankind. (laughs) Yeah. You're fucked if he gets out. Giger's designs for for Dune are incredible. They're, they uh, you can you can find a lot of them uh, available online or watch. Uh, like I mentioned last week, watch the film Yodorowsky's Dune. But his brilliant designs couldn't save that movie. Uh, it it nobody wanted to fund it. <laughs> so after Dune collapsed, O'Bannon was left homeless and broke, and ended up having to couch surf to survive. Uh, and eventually, he ended up on the couch of his old friend Ronald Chusette, and the two decided to revive that that memory script that he'd been working on uh, a couple years earlier. And O'Bannon had been stuck on the script. He, like we said, he, he had written about 29 pages, but he couldn't get past that. So we asked, she was set to take a look at it. And the two, eventually it became a collaboration. They reworked it a little bit and they retitled the project star beast and then began to shop it around without much luck at all at first. And O'Bannon would eventually take this early version of the script to Roger Corman. Uh, Corman thought the script was good. He liked it, but he told O'Bannon, he's like, this is going to require a much bigger budget than I can give you. I'm Roger Corman. <laughs> do, you know, do you know how I work? Uh, so he suggested that O'Bannon shop it around to other bigger studios because he thought it really had potential. And he wanted to see if he's like, hey, if you can't get another studio to give you a big budget for it, come back to me. We'll see what we can do and see if we can work on the kind of budget that I would be able to give Although I am morbidly curious to see what a Roger Corman alien would look like. Oh, there are alien ripoffs that are that are produced by Roger Corman. They're out there. Nice. So, uh, Roger Corman <laughs> liked to uh, really like to to let's say riff on popular movies. Uh, okay. <laughs> and Alien is no exception. Nice. So none of the studios that they shopped this around to, they couldn't really figure out how to do the special effects for the film. Uh, That was something they couldn't really get their heads around. So O'Bannon, he went back to a second script that he'd been working on. Uh, This one was about a parasite in space, another sci-fi script, but a parasite in space that would attach itself to a crew member of the spaceship. And which if you've seen Alien sounds pretty familiar. So he combined elements of these two scripts and reconceptualized the monster from this kind of bizarrely shaped arachnid like spider-like monster to Mm. a more human shaped monster, because he's like, then we can get a guy in a rubber suit. Makes sense. You should have learned on, I guess on a a dark star that that wasn't necessarily the best direction to go in. If you're just looking for a guy in a rubber suit, it can go wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But then O'Bannon got sidetracked from this project. Once again, this time it was because he received a phone call from none other than George Lucas. So Lucas, just like Yodorowsky, had been impressed with O'Bannon's work on Dark Star, and he invited him to help out on a little sci-fi movie he was working on called Star Wars. Have we For seen the next? Have we seen Star Wars? Have you guys seen Star Wars? I've heard of it. Okay, all right, we'll cover yeah. it at some point. Okay, we'll probably watch it. It's a lesser known one. <laughs> so for the next three months, O'Bannon designed some of the animation on the movie, a sort of crude early form of computer generated special effects that included the display that like shows how the torpedoes are able to enter the death star. You know, that scene on the screen, oh, that yeah. was Dan O'Bannon. I mean, and this was playing on 
the kind of effects that, you know, I think Gary talked about it a little bit last week that he had done on Dark Star that had been so innovative. And it was cool. I mean, he got to work on Star Wars. So when we say the unsung legacy of Dan O'Bannon, like so far, Alien hasn't even been made yet. And he's already worked with John Carpenter, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky, and George Lucas on Star Wars. Nice. Uh, the dude had his hands in a lot of huge projects. You, you'd think he would be a household name, but he's not. And part of it's because he's, uh, I don't know, his, he kind of got fucked over. And part of it's because he's kind of difficult to work with, as, we'll, as we will get into. <laughs> yeah, the conversa- the that conversation he had with John Carpenter seemed like enough to get him put on a couple lists. Yeah, or, ta- yeah, or so. taken off of lists. Well, whereas John Carpenter, even though he can be a, seem seem like a dick, difficult person, he knows how to play the politics. And Dan O'Bannon yeah. had never had any interest in playing the politics of Hollywood. So this work on Star Wars, you know, it was it paid the bills. You know, he he got a, a job for three months, it paid the bills, but it didn't exactly have like Hollywood knocking down his door to give him more work. So I'm going to take a little side note on on this because I want to talk take a minute to retrace just where. O'Bannon is at this time. So he'd made Dark Star. Uh, that was a film that he had hoped would launch his career. But like we discussed last week, it opened to little to no fanfare. It closed as quickly as it opened. And then he spent months in Paris working on Dune only for that to fail as well. But then he notices how his old collaborator, John Carpenter, had started to become recognized as a hot up and coming director, even before Halloween. His follow-up to Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, had opened at the Cannes Film Festival and was a pretty decent hit. So it made a it made John Carpenter kind of a director to watch. And Obana would later say, he said, this is a quote from him, Carpenter would call me up and got a big boost over rubbing it in my face and he th- that he threw me overboard and he was doing just fine. It was sheer cruelty. So there's kind of a, a weird thing between them you know there's a rivalry between them and at this point john carpenter's winning honestly because because yeah. <laughs> he's at least had some success and o'bannon by the way did begrudgingly go to the assault on precinct 13 premiere because john carpenter invited him probably maybe to rub it in his face or maybe this is all just o'bannon projecting because this is from his i was about to say it's possible that john carpenter was being a douche but it's also very possible that dan o'bannon just yeah like you said is projecting like yeah, he seems he to have a hate odd for most people yes he does uh so but he went to it and he hated assault on precinct 13 uh he just thought that john carpenter was he thought it was mean-spirited and he was like you know he he said john carpenter just didn't like seemed to not like people in his movies because they were treated so cruelly in his movies. Which is so funny because I have, because of last week and this week, I mean, I feel like we find Dan O'Bannon doesn't seem to like people very much. So (laughs) it doesn't seem to like most people for sure. It's just so interesting to me that these are like, I I don't know. These are his things. I think they're both kind of grumpy dudes. And, (laughs) but at some point it's not everybody else. It's you. (laughs) Yes, exactly. If there is a common denominator in all of the issues that you have, with everyone and that common denominator is you yeah Uh, (laughs) so at the same time all this is happening he was suffering from an awful wrenching pain just below his navel because we discussed this a little bit last week during the filming of dark star he was hospitalized and misdiagnosed with appendicitis but even removing his appendix didn't help and it wasn't correctly diagnosed with as crohn's disease until 1980 Uh, but he'd already spent years being tormented by the illness, which if you know anything about Crohn's disease, it, it completely disrupts 
the normal process of digestion. It just leaves you in immense pain. So the simple act of eating terrified him because yeah. just eating could bring on this incredible pain in his stomach, uh, which I mean, you can't blame him for kind of being grumpy all the time when you're in pain that much, because there is no cure for Crohn's disease either. You can do things to alleviate some of the symptoms, changing your diet, but there's no cure for it. You live with it for the rest of your life. So he, he couldn't really, he couldn't eat without it like hurting. A, a simple trip to the bathroom for him could potentially mean hours of pain, not to mention the humiliation of it, the, the mental strain on you. And this whole thing, it made him very nervous about traveling or even being far away from a bathroom, which, which makes it very hard when you're a filmmaker who you know, needs to travel for work. And stress made his condition worse. So the pain in his stomach was always on his mind. Oof. But what he didn't realize is that it would eventually serve as the inspiration for one of the best ideas that Dan O'Bannon ever had for a movie. So I, I think I can see where we're going with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's that seated dumb and dumber. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Another wonderful contribution by Dan O'Bannon to the world of cinema. <laughs> he is actually the, the pseudonym of Peter Ferrelli. There you go. <laughs> so Shuset and O'Bannon are, they're toying with their script, pulling from Lovecraft, pulling, they're, they're pulling from a lot of things. Like uh, O'Bannon has been quoted as saying, I don't steal from anyone. I steal from everyone. So he's, he's, <laughs> pulling from Lovecraft from uh, it, the terror from beyond, which is a 1950s sci-fi movie. That's pretty cool. And uh, pulled very heavily from Mario Bava's planet of the vampires. Their script had a, a work, a crew of kind of working class astronauts, all actually male in the original script who are returning to earth when they're sidetracked by a message from a room, from a remote planet. So they're, they've got reports that there might be an alien life form on the planet. So they send a small team to investigate and then it's there that they find an ancient looking abandoned spacecraft. And inside the spacecraft, they find a room of egg-like shells with spidery looking little creatures. One of them jumps out and attaches to the face of the astronaut. So they, they've already got all of this stuff in their script at this point. This is actually one of, one of Shusette's major contributions to the script. He imagined a creature that operated like, a, there's a type of a wasp that latches itself onto a spider and uses it as a host to plant an egg. What? It's it's wild. I, I, I watched footage of it on, on YouTube. Uh, he, he describes like watching a documentary, like a nature documentary and yeah. seeing it. He was saying there was like this grub that was under, like hidden, hides under a piece of bark and it's sitting there. And then the insect slowly walks over and it's like walking over the bark. And he said, you even see it stop and it like backs up. All of a sudden this needle comes out and it just shoves this needle all the way through the bark and into the grub below it and ejects its eggs. And he said that was just like super freaky. Like, it's super whoa. freaky because <laughs> eggs are inside of another creature now. And there's even, I even watched some like, um, like time-lapse footage of this caterpillar that had had the eggs implanted in it. And you just see these little larvae start to burst out of it. So that's just their weird life cycle it's fucking terrifying bugs can, are gross can, can we post can we post that <laughs> yeah i'll find it again it's, it's out there because that's uh, messed yeah. up man <laughs> so he that's where he gets that's where Shusette gets the idea only wow. of course the aliens life cycle is accelerated but that allowed it to change shape after it enters the ship it's sort of ingenious i mean uh the fact that it hadn't been done before is is wild to think of now but it's a really genius idea of a, of a way to get an alien inside of a spaceship yeah so Shusette gave him, he, he told him his idea of using this wasp as inspiration. 
and O'Bannon listened to it, mulled it over. And then that night, he wakes up in the middle of the night. Remember, he's still sleeping on a, a on Shusette's couch. He walks over to Shusette's bedroom, knocks on the door, and proposes an idea. You know, he, he'd been thinking this over, and all of a sudden, Shusette's idea and, a, and another idea of his kind of click together. And this is an idea that would eventually be one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. So O'Bannon comes to Shusette, and he says, the monster bursts out of his stomach. <laughs> So he explained to Shusette that the alien not only lays its, he- its egg inside of the human, but it grows inside and emerges as a baby violently bursting out of its host. And that idea, of course, was very personal for O'Bannon because that's what his Crohn's disease felt like. And O'Bannon also very specifically wanted it to be a man that got infected. Uh, he-, he specifically wanted to take the trope that John Carpenter had used, uh, the idea of a, a woman uh, as your victim, and break it. He said, quote, having the victim in a horror movie always be a woman was a cheap shot. I always imagine the director jerking off. Oh, I can't wait to see that woman get chopped to pieces. No, I want to see a man get it because I knew it would make the men uneasy. So he's aiming this movie towards men in the audience because that's who is typically watching like a horror movie, you know, at this time in, in, the, in the late 1970s. And he wanted them to feel freaked out by seeing a man get victimized on screen. Wow. Yeah, it's weird. He he talks a little bit about wanting to avoid like the the final girl phenomena, but uh, it is interesting. I mean, Ripley still kinds of ends up in that way, but she's certainly more resourceful and yeah. I mean, but, but again, that wasn't his. This is early on in his script, and at this point, Ripley is not written as a woman. Oh, that's true. Uh, Rip, yeah. Well, Ripley was never written as a woman. Uh, but in his original version of the script, he specifically had an all male crew because. Of this very reason, he wanted to see the men be the ones running from the monster. Wow! So that chestburster scene, the iconic chestburster scene, that was the first major decision that O'Bannon made that helped to make the film an what would become an iconic one. I mean, there there are it will we'll discuss that scene in, in detail here in a bit, but it is one of the most famous movie scenes in history. So oh, like, yeah, coming up with that idea, that's step one to like this movie being. The, the iconic film that it is. The second decision that he made that would turn out to be incredibly important to the making of this film was to pick H.R. Giger to design the creature. This is a pretty bold move. I mean, if you've seen Giger's paintings, the ones that we described earlier, you would understand. I mean, they're very obscene. They're very off-putting. Uh, they look like nothing like any movie monster that's ever been created. So in the middle of writing the script, O'Bannon calls Giger, explains to him, and Giger doesn't speak very good English, so he's like kind of overly articulating his words as he's speaking to Giger. Uh, He's telling him the general outline of the movie, and then he sent Giger a package that included a check for $1,000 and some sketches by Ron Cobb. That was, remember, that his one of his production designers on Dark Star. uh, Some sketches that Ron Cobb and O'Bannon had done along with a list of stuff that he wanted designed. And although the, the final designs were fully Giger's. I mean, if you've seen Giger's work and then you see the designs on Alien, they, those are those are his. But it's very obvious when you start looking at what, what O'Bannon was doing on this film, even before there was a director attached, that he had a very real vision of what he wanted this movie to look like. Like when he's sending these notes to Giger, he's describing the temple where the ship held the alien egg as ancient, primitive, and cruel. Uh, he told Giger that he wanted to see the alien in three different forms, the first of which he described as a small octopoidal creature. 
And then the third version, the full grown monster, he described in his note to Giger, he just says it as a quote, profane abomination. That's the only description (laughs) he gave to Giger (laughs) and and Giger ran with it and and nailed every single version. (laughs) Yeah, he did. They are all terrifying. (laughs) They are. And and the the producers didn't quite get it. Even that thousand dollars, like the producers were supposed to send that. That was kind of their deal when they were trying to sign Giger on was like, hey, you know, we'll go ahead and send you a thousand dollars now to start doing some sketches. And the producers didn't want to do it because they didn't really believe in the idea of having Giger on it. So O'Bannon wrote that check out of his personal account wow. and sent him a thousand dollars. The producers actually suggested the monster be an oversized deformed baby. Um, and O'Bannon told Giger, he's like, yeah, I told him, but then I was just like, you know, I mean, here's the idea that they have, but just kind of do what you want with it. <laughs> so he didn't really push it. Like he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll forward that message on to, to Hans. Right. And, <laughs> and then, and then I've done my job. I've done, I've done my part. Then right. whatever he brings back is whatever he brings back with Giger. Like the cool part is, is that like biomechanical stuff you're talking about. Like, even if you look at with like uh, uh, the best example would be like the space jockey in, yeah. in the film is just like, it's like he's grafted into the seat or whatever. That's like totally a Giger thing where does the tech end and the biologic biology begin on that obanon like he he had like specific ideas but but the craftiest part of this is is like he did seem to be willing to work with everybody for instance they talk about uh, the face hugger you know he had described it like you said like kind of like an octopus like creature or something and giger sends over the art and uh he, he tells the story that they actually had to go to LAX to pick up the art like from customs because they got it and they were all like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> they had no idea what was going on with these paintings. They had to like personally go and say like, no, it's for a movie and like explain everything to get it out of customs. He said, you know, Giger had like one thing design. But the biggest part of his design that he liked was the thing he said it was like more flat, but it had these fingers instead of like tentacles, like what he had envisioned. And but he thought the fingers just looked like the creepiest thing in the world. And he said, "All yeah, right, no matter what's on them." Yeah, he was like, "No matter what happens from here, I'm gonna use that. Like that has to make it in the movie. That is the creepiest thing." So it's not even till later when like Ridley Scott's on board that they finish up the design of it because like oh, Scott has ideas about like like kind of the shape of what it would look like. But Obana actually, Obana actually seems to negotiate it with the, you know, he he ends up taking a part of what Scott liked, and then taking Giger's design. He goes in it, and and this is later on, you know, in the the making of the film. But he draws out himself, like Obana draws up the pictures in with Ron Cobb, like sitting in the room, like he draws up the faces and takes Giger's painting and copies it in detail and draws up the face hugger all himself this is all O'Bannon and uh yeah remember he's an artist by you know that's his background yeah and so it's just crazy just like how much work he put into it so he he draws this whole thing up and and he brings it to Scott it's like this look good he's like yep that's it he even had a Rod Cobb just for the the added thing to it that he wanted it to be so detailed that the skeletal structure underneath like when you see it from the bottom that it would make sense. So he had Rod Cobb actually come in and like design like what the bones would look like. Yeah, because uh, well, remember Ron Cobb is is a illustrator who is he he was very concerned with things being scientifically accurate. 
Mm. Exactly. Yeah. So that was that was a really cool part. I thought just that. Just well, yeah, because I think Giger's original face hugger was like huge. It was really big, and it had this big long like tail that was like a like a spiral that would so he would spring out of the of the uh, the egg and latch on, but it, like it was like bigger than a dude's head. It was really large. So that, but so, you know, even though he has a singular vision, he, he worked, you know, when they, they came back with notes on things to change, he would change them accordingly. You know, it wasn't like he was like, no, this is like how I'm going to do it. And if you don't like it, you know, you can stuff it, but he, I figured we owed it to him for as grumpy as we make him sound. Sometimes he was like negotiating these things out and taking different ideas and putting them. I mean, even from the color of the thing, he talks about, you know, when he got the design down, he took it to the sculptors and they made like a clay version of the face hugger and uh, they did a molding, but they hadn't colored it yet. He had always pictured it like green, like reptilian. And uh, as he and Scott were like looking at it, there was something away. He said it was just like that weird flesh tone to it. And uh, he said he he was like talking to Scott and like, man, we should just leave it just like this. This is kind of weirder. Like yeah. nothing's been done like this before. <laughs> well, in terms of the face hugger, the thing that stuck out to me uh, is when they go in to initially examine it and it's laid out on the table and they start lifting parts. And I, to me, and I mean, I've seen this movie before, but just this time watching it was just like, that looks fucking real. That's because it's, it's a bunch of, so a bunch of oysters. Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. All right. Man, man. Wow. What a. They, they, yeah, they didn't have the, you know, the, the technology great. for prosthetic that was that good didn't really exist at the time. So, yeah, that's a bunch of like seafood and shit that's sitting wow. there. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. That looks, I, yeah, I clearly didn't know, but that looks great. I love, I love how, uh, I know we're going to get to it, but just this with like, you're talking about some of those special effects, just how loose they are with some of these ideas, just Steven, uh, to hear him talk about Ash later on, uh, Scott's just like, he's like, we don't have a tech, the technology or, you know, like, what's it going to take to make something look really futuristic and robotic. And it's just like, I don't know, let's just stuff it full of noodles and glass spheres <laughs> And, uh, he's like that just looks so at fast i don't know what the fuck's going on <laughs> <laughs> all right so with the designs in the works and giger on board o'bannon and Shusette finish the script they send it back to roger corman and he offers them seven hundred fifty thousand dollars for it this time which o'bannon thought was a pretty generous offer i mean that's a lot of money from coming from roger corman but Shusette thought that they could shop it around see star wars had just opened and it, it was a big hit uh, let's say, <laughs> uh, which meant Some that studios would say were, it's successful. It's a successful film. So <laughs> that meant the studios were more keen to buy a sci-fi project. And the fact that Corman had jumped on to buy it so quickly made him think that, Hey, other studios who might offer us more would probably do that too. And he so was right. kids, you've, you're now finding out that if it weren't for George Lucas, all of your favorite movies wouldn't exist. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not that's not untrue <laughs> but so alan ladd jr the executive at 20th century fox who had greenlit star wars was happened to be looking for another space epic he had hired a trio of filmmakers to come up with a darker sci-fi movie one that kind of married sci-fi with horror and those filmmakers were named david geiler gordon carroll and walter hill together known as brandywine Productions. so of the three hills is probably the name that uh, our listeners might recognize uh, before this, he was known for writing hard-edged screenplays for movies like The Getaway and The Drowning Pool. He would later go on to direct stuff like The Warriors, 
48 hours in red heat. Uh, Hill and Geiler had sold themselves to Fox, uh, had sold Brandywine Productions to Fox as like they were writers who could punch up a script and get rid of the filler. So that was kind of their thing. It's like, you hire us to produce this. We're going to take a screenplay that has a good hook maybe, but isn't quite ready to go into production and we're going to fix it and we're going to make it a viable box office success. Nice. It's a good so gig, one day a guy a good named, gig if you can get it. Yeah. I mean, and because especially with Hill, he had the background, he had, he had written several movies that had been successful. So one day a guy named Mark Haggard, who, who was an old USC friend of O'Bannon's visited Hill in their office at Brandywine Productions and dropped off a copy of the alien script. And he's like, you should, read this and you should, you know, this, you could, should consider directing this film. So Hill, Hill didn't know who O'Bannon and Shuset were, uh, but he was looking for a sci-fi movie because that's what Fox wanted. So he took it home and read it and he got a, about a quarter of a way into it. And he stopped reading to call Guyler. He told Guyler, he's like, this script is kind of terrible, but there's this really great scene about a third of the way in where an alien incubated inside of a person bursts out of his stomach. <laughs> so he found that that chest burster scene alone was an, enough. That was worth building on. That was worth working on the script because he's like, I had never seen anything like this before. To his credit. I mean, you know, that's like one of the most memorable movie scenes of all time. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So o O'Bannon and Shuset signed a deal with Brandywine, but there was a bit of tension. Be let's go. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say Hill and, and Guyler are also another couple of grumpy dudes who are involved in the production of this movie. <laughs> they, uh, Hill is, a, is he's he seems difficult as well. Very yeah. set in his ways. It, definitely in the commentary stuff and interviews I saw, uh, O'Bannon does not like Hill. Like no, he, 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 does he thinks he's like a dickhead pretty much. I mean, he kind of comes across as one, to be honest. <laughs> I, I like Hill as a, as a filmmaker. I like some of his movies a lot, but uh, yeah. Uh, so there was some tension because Hill and Geiler, they started making changes to the script, which is uh, again, their job, <laughs> but uh, Shusset and O'Bannon were not happy with this. Shusset would later say in, in an interview they weren't good at making it better or in fact at not making it even worse. So, uh, but Hill and Guyler, they had some significant, they added some significant elements to the story, including the character of Ash. That character did not, did not exist in uh, O'Bannon's original version of the script. Hmm. They went through eight different drafts of the script. Uh, and a lot of those rewrites concentrated heavily on the Ash subplot, but also on making the dialogue more natural, uh, which I think they, did a superb job at personally yeah i was wondering because there's a couple moments where i was like is that scripted that sounds so off the cuff that that comes from i think hill's script and also the direction of the film because there's a lot of this like cool overlapping dialogue that's very like yeah. robert altman-esque where people yeah. are talking you have to kind of decide on who you're going to listen to uh, robert altman was very well known for doing that and steven spielberg does it uh he does it in jaws a good bit uh mm -hmm. and in close encounters but yeah some of, some of the just people said feel more the, natural you know very some of the dialogue in the original i think I, I think it was hill that described it kind of as well somebody had described it as poetic and, and in some interview hill said no it was pretentious and obscure but i don't know obana didn't like any of this like obana no. was was unhappy with this he 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 talked about like how hard he worked to not give 
psychological profiles to all of these characters and to uh he, he said you know you're tempted to give these things in good movies you, you see this all the time he said except for one thing it always bores the hell out of me except in so much it has bearing on the situation at hand i he, he, quote I didn't want to stop and tell life stories of these characters because I didn't give a rat's ass. I cared about the monster that was going to kill them, so I didn't do any of that. Uh, and, and his dialogue was like, stuff shouldn't be there that wouldn't be just natural yes and no conversation. They're real people in a real situation with real history. It doesn't matter why they're there. Who gives a shit? <laughs> this is, this I'm is not so, sure I agree with that. But <laughs> but O'Bannon, that's how O'Bannon is. And he hated, he hated Ash. Like he thought that that was stupid. He did not think much of a robot being there. He calls it the the Russian spy treatment. He says it's like Fantastic <laughs> Voyage. He says it's annoying. He says why does there always have to be a Russian spy? He says it's a common tension device. He describes it as like you know in Fantastic Voyage, it's like you're getting to go do all of this awesome stuff, but then you find out there's a Russian spy. He says, "quote It's an inferior idea from inferior minds that in this movie is well acted and well directed." <laughs> Fortunately, it does not take up too much time. <laughs> well, Ron Chusset in later interviews would say that it was one of the better contributions to the script. He said he thought it was a genius idea adding this, the Ash character. And maybe that's just Chusset being much more neutrally or, or more pol playing politics a little bit more or a little bit better than O'Bannon does. But Chusset seems to really like the idea and thought it was a, an excellent idea to add the Ash character to the story. Yeah, I just uh, I had to make sure we cover. It just feels like so O'Bannon. That, that's a direct <laughs> quote from the commentary. It's an inferior idea from inferior minds that's well acted and well directed. Fortunately, it doesn't take up too much time. <laughs> I kind of love how cranky he is, honestly. Uh, I love it. He's he's a fun guy to watch in interviews, too, because he's like, if you see him in later interviews, like where he's older, he's got the white hair and the glasses, and he's always wearing like a bow tie and suspenders. Uh, right. he's, a, he's a character. So Walter Hill takes the idea to Alan Ladd, and he's like, this is a this is B-movie material, but if we dress it up with A-movie production values, we could fool the audience into thinking it's an A-movie. That was kind of his pitch to Alan Ladd. And Alan Ladd went for it, but with one caveat, he said, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it big. He wanted Alien to look like a blockbuster. He essentially wanted another Star Wars. And just like that, this little monster movie that was supposed to star a guy in a rubber suit became a $10 million event film for a major studio. And this was a huge deal for Dan O'Bannon for his career, as well as for his health. Because 1977, when this is all going down, had been very tough for him health-wise. His Crohn's disease had sent him in and out of the hospital multiple times that year. And, you know, things are looking up finally for Dan. You know, with Alien, he was given screenwriting credit on the film, despite the fact that the shooting script was written by Hill and Geiler. But he also negotiated to where he had a say in the look of the film, and in doing that, he was able to bring in his old co-workers from Dune, uh, illustrator Chris Foss, Mobius, and Ron Cobb. Yeah, I love the addition of Ron Cobb. I mean, you know, uh, we'll not forget that he's from Dark Star as well. Uh, but he had also done, apparently, uncredited work on Star Wars for, like, creature designs. Like, uh, oh, yeah, really? Yeah, just uh, interesting, like, creature concepts and stuff like that. So he was kind of blazing his old trail in the industry there. And he seems to be another guy that uh, O'Bannon bounced ideas off of pretty regularly. Yeah. Um, yeah they, they seem to be 
big collaborators more than just co like I'm going to hire you to design like they they bounced ideas off each other a lot it seemed yeah I mean like for it's it's like the acid blood that's Ron Cobb that was Ron Cobb yep yeah he had just genius uh, idea yeah Obana was like basically stuck at this point of why don't they just kill him you know why don't they just kill the alien like they, he didn't what he he thought it was too tropey to like include this like bulletproof monster he thought that, that right. he wanted it to seem real like biological like this is a real thing and so yeah you could shoot it up and it would die but like why wouldn't you do that and besides the fact that these are space truckers so they're oh, just well, walking around they with do guns. aliens <laughs> but yeah yeah <laughs> that's what they do with aliens but he uh but yeah, he he said he was talking to Rod Cobb about it. Rod Cobb just came up with the ideas like, what if you just had a blood for or you know acid for blood, and it would just like burn through the ship if it, like melts metal. And uh, yeah. hey, it's like Obed is just like, yes, yes, that's yeah. perfect. It's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. So now you don't kill it. So O'Bannon's vision for Alien was similar to what Yodorowsky wanted to do on Dune, which was you put a bunch of great artists in a room together and let them trade ideas and bounce things off each other, you know? And the plan was for Ron Cobb to design the spaceships using the latest cutting edge science. Remember, as we discussed in our dark star episode, Cobb was a designer who liked his sci-fi designs to seem functional. Uh, only this time the budget would allow them to use more than, you know, just egg cartons and ice cube trays in the design, but they still saw the aesthetic much like in dark star as dirty, industrial, rusted, you know, a, that used, space look that had never really been seen before. Giger's style, on the other hand, had no basis in science. He did not care at all if his alien looked like it could biologically exist. Uh, it didn't have eyes. Like, who cares? Giger wasn't worried about the science of it. He just wanted to create something that looked scary. He could give a shit if it's something that is based in science. I even thought, I, I think I saw somewhere where he he like even had eyes at first and then took them off. I was like, nah, it's going to be creepier if it sniffs you out. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and his designs for the alien were based on his painting uh, Necronom 4. If you have, Google that if you want, and you'll you'll see an alien xenomorph. <laughs> That's what's in that painting. He, he made several conceptual paintings of the creature before settling on the final version, and then he sculpted the creature himself, although the creature's head was created by a guy named Carlo Rimbaldi who'd worked on the aliens on Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Carlo Rimbaldi is a kind of a, a legendary effects guy and would eventually win an Oscar for his work on this film. And he stuck pretty close to Giger's design, but he did make some modifications to the, the head that would allow him to turn it into this fully articulated head. It had, you know, hinges for the mouth, cables, and, you know, for allowing the inner, the inner mouth to extend, things like that. And then they covered the whole thing in slime, and that slime was actually just KY jelly. <laughs> Which is yeah. why it seems like your mom at some points. Like it just, just uh, she's always uh, just covered uh, in KY. That's so there was a joke. There was a joke there. There was your mama joke somewhere in there. I, I mean, dro- I dropped space in space, no one can hear you spank it. <laughs> I was gonna go in space, no one can hear you cream. Oh yeah, I see what you're oh that yeah. yeah that wins yeah yeah well and you're, done. And you're well the done. writer comedian here. I'll take the silver. On. I'll take the silver medal. That's fine. <laughs> Wait, why does that mean I got? Well, uh, yeah, I kind of gave up yeah. on mine. <laughs> so, it's, it's <laughs> so okay, fine. Um, but yeah, the 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 cool part here is that the Giger style. It's it's fantastic, like just the way this thing looks. Uh, a lot of, the, like uh, Scott was saying, the interiors and stuff of those ships are all 
Rod Cobb. He actually gives credit to him for like mm-hmm. most of that. And uh, but then the Giger stuff is like anything alien is Giger, and like pretty much anything human is like Rod Cobb did a lot of yeah. that design work. Yeah. And and, uh, and Chris Foss did a lot of um concept. His his kind of whole thing was conceptual design of the exteriors of the spaceships. Mm. Ron Cobb did a lot of the interiors and figuring out the design of how this could actually, the spaceship could actually function. Whereas Chris Foss, like he, he was a sci-fi illustrator. He did sci-fi novel covers, you know? And so that was kind of his thing was creating the the stuff on the outside of the Nostromo. Yeah. And, and my apologies, I'm like bouncing all back and forth with like jumping into the actual production of the film itself, but instead of just the designs where you're, you're really talking about, but uh anyway I, I i just remember reading a bunch about this and just it was really cool obana was here too though like he had ideas you know once they actually got into designing of like common done all straight hallways so like obana was thinking of the tension of the thing it was talking about uh he made him go redesign the he suggested redesigning the hallways to have like quarters he's like you want blind spots so you don't know what's yeah. what where, what's around the turn like you gotta have yeah. that stuff it's a great idea so things are looking up for O'Bannon, you know, but being O'Bannon, he, he is a pessimist at heart. He always kind of expected things to go wrong. He was worried that the studio would change his script or try to stop him from using Giger's designs. And those things kind of did happen. <laughs> the studio started to get nervous. Uh, Hill and Geiler are already changing the script. But the, the studio, they started to get unsure about this because as even as we'll talk about the casting in a bit, but even as it started to get cast, like none of the people who are in it are like big movie stars. Uh, although if they had looked back at, you know, star Wars, nobody in that was a movie star either. The writers were unproven and those Giger designs were not exactly family friendly. They were like, how are parents who took their kids to star Wars going to feel about uh, a monster with a head that looks like a big black dick? Well, Families today have Pornhub, so that's just common. <laughs> uh, they don't have and to worry. And there's lots of families on Pornhub, so well, you step go. families. You know, really, it's what are a you, lot of step families. What are you doing, step Todd? But one, but one of them, but one of them's one of them's away on business a lot. <laughs> so the studio also so had I've a director told. problem here. Uh, Walter Hill left the film. Once he realized that he's like, there's going to be a lot of special effects in this movie. And he was kind of always bored of the idea of doing special effects work. I don't know how he initially didn't think this was going to be an effects heavy movie when he <laughs> read the script, but that was his reasoning for leaving. But there was probably another reason. One that he never really had a lot of faith in the project. It didn't seem, uh, he never really seemed to be that into it. Plus he had another movie that he wanted to work on. He had another movie that it was kind of in development that he wanted to work on. So he left to go work on that project. That project would end up being Southern comfort, which is a, a really good movie, uh, but it's not alien. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, all right. <laughs> Although maybe a Walter Hill version of alien would not have been, it would not have been this movie at, at all, you know? True. So Fox goes looking for other directors and several of them turn the project down until eventually the job was accepted by a newcomer by the name of Ridley Scott. I'm sure you know that name. Uh, he's incredibly famous now, but at the time he was relatively new. Uh, Ridley Scott's an English director. He'd gotten his start in filmmaking by making television commercials, was very well known as a commercial director. And he had recently made his film debut with the 1977 film, The Duelist, which won the award for best debut film at the Cannes Film Festival. 
Supposedly this guy Sanford Lieber said I had seen like had seen that movie who worked for like 20th Century Fox London Division. And he was the first person that started like passing script stuff over to Scott with with the director stuff started to go up in the air, like okay. uh, had been had been pushing it over to him. Well, I mean, it's funny because there's nothing about the duelist that makes you think this guy needs to do a sci-fi movie, <laughs> you know, uh, because the duelist is about like, it's about two duelists in like Napoleonic France. There's nothing oh, okay. fantastic about it at all. And it had not been like a big hit at the box office, but like we said, it, it had won some acclaim, some critical acclaim and some awards and it had caught Hollywood's attention because it was because of how it looks because of this flashy aesthetic, because there's one thing about Ridley Scott. Uh, I'm, I'm hit or miss on Ridley Scott as a director. Like, I think he can be very, very good, but I think he can be bad as well. But there's one thing, good or bad, regardless of, of how I feel about the film, uh, one of his films as a whole, is that they always look fantastic. Uh, and that's because, again, he got his start in in commercials, and he had a background in that kind of stuff. He he had to be able to tell stories in a visual sense in, you know, 30 seconds at a time. You know, there are Ridley Scott movies, like, obviously, this is a very high point, this movie, but something like Legend, I do not like Legend at all. I think Legend is very boring uh, and not a good movie, but I think it looks gorgeous. And that's kind of that visual style is what caught Hollywood's attention. That's what made people think of him for even movies like this that didn't seem to be, you know, in the wheelhouse of what he had made before. And Ridley Scott, you know, he actually, after the success of Star Wars, he actually saw where the tide was turning and he wanted to work on a space film next. So when Fox came to him and offered him Alien, he jumped on the opportunity. Yeah, it's it's interesting, like... Ronald Chassette tells the story that like when, when Scott was approached and now the, at this point um, they'd supposedly been through potential directors. Scott says he was fifth on the list. Uh, Any idea was, who the other ones were? Yeah. Uh, some of the names I saw were Peter Yates, Jack Clayton, well, obviously Walter Hill. There was a, a point Dan O'Bannon was considered for the directing role and uh, Robert Aldrich, uh, who did uh i just watched the other day whatever happened to baby jane and he did that oh, movie yeah. and i i thought it was fantastic it was my first time seeing it and i really really loved that movie but one thing that drove me nuts is i saw that he was he was actually the closest supposedly out of those names before walter hill and uh they said that he lost the job because he uh they came up to him talking about the design of the the face hugger and aldrich they said Aldrich just shrugged and said, I think we'll just put some entrails on the guy's face. It's not like anybody's going to remember that thing once they left the theater. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, he clearly did not have a grasp on the screenplay at all. Yeah. And so <laughs> anyway, yeah. But but Ridley Scott, according to Ronald Shushet, and this is interesting because there is a story, and I think you have it in your notes too to, to talk about later, but like of, of O'Bannon showing them Texas Chainsaw, but Chassette tells a story uh, that says uh, the first thing that Ridley Scott told him when they were talking to him about the job, because uh, Chassette, you know, he was co-writer, but he's also a producer on here. He said that Scott said, I want to make a straightforward, unpretentious, riveting thriller. I'm thinking Psycho, Rosemary's Baby, 
or even brilliant B-level stuff like Night of the Living Dead or Texas Chainsaw. Uh, he said, and he's like, he's like, but I want it to look, he said, quote, and I want it to look and I'm going to do this. It's going to be those things that it's going to look like 2001. Yeah, and, that's awesome. What a great approach. Yeah, yeah. Great approach. and he said, uh, and he said just the way he talked about it, he was like, I knew he could do it. And, yeah. and I, I didn't, you know, I, I, he said he had seemed like the duelist and thought maybe this would be like a pretentious guy, but he said that he and O'Bannon and uh, Scott throughout the making of the movie would sit and watch all kinds of scare movies because they wanted to learn, like it was important to get the timing down. And, and that's something we'll talk about a little bit later too. But uh, you know, for all those who doubt alien as a horror movie, I mean, that's 100% the thought process that, are there alien doubters? Alien? I don't know. I just doubters? think, I, I don't know. Like when people think of like favorite horror movies, I don't know that like alien for casual viewers would be like a first that would, I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think people get caught up in the fact that it's set in space and, and they're like, Oh, it's a sci-fi. No, it's a horror. Like it can be fucking both, you know, yeah. <laughs> it can be a sci-fi and a horror movie and it is both. And it's not the first or the last movie to be both a horror movie and a sci-fi movie so that's like you don't have to put it in one or the other and it's i could a be haunted just making house that movie. it's a haunted house movie that happens to be set in space oh yeah yeah no, um, I, didn't, I didn't think about it like that that yeah that's true oh that's 100 percent the way he'll pitch harry dean stanton but we'll talk about that later but like the uh <laughs> um yeah i mean o'bannon and shush shush it uh they uh, <laughs> they 100 were thinking of it with horror so i think scott sold them that he also was coming into this like nah man more as a, a horror movie than a sci-fi movie yeah and he's like it's a b it's a b movie a b horror movie and we're gonna make it look like 2001 yeah and, which uh, is you know which is again how hill initially sold it to uh to Alan Ladd. And and even though Hill is no longer a director, he's still a producer of this. Brandywine Productions is still producing. So Hill is actually still involved as well. So here we are. We've got we've got Ridley Scott. We've got a script. We've got H.R. Giger. Ever all all these things are coming into place to create this movie, but now we've got to get a cast. So with only seven human characters in the story, Ridley Scott knew that he needed strong actors in the roles so that he could focus on the film's visual style because he is a very visual director. Can I say something about Ridley really quickly uh, that Please I love do. about him? Uh, one of the things that... Now, of course, I'm basing this solely, solely on interviews with Ridley himself, but who knows what he acts like on set? But he seems like, as uh, with all of these movies that we've talked about, he seems to be very much about collaboration and he realizes the importance of everybody on set, uh, not just himself. Like obviously he has a creative vision and uh, he, he talks a lot in stuff I saw about the cast. Uh, you got to feel that in your gut and it's 50% of your problems solved. If you get the right cast. They're going to help you with a lot of the decisions that get made and a lot of things that happen in the scenes. He said that with this cast that he put together, he felt like ba ba basically that he had nailed it, that he, that he had, they knew something special was happening right when they were going in there. Now he, he wondered about how people felt about it because he does say he's, he can be an ass on set from time to time, but his uh, interesting quote there was, he says, nobody respects you for being nice and you got to get it done and you wear what you got when it's over. 
So you got to make sure at the end of the day, your vision is the one that makes it on screen because you're, you're living with it for the rest of your life. There, there, there's going to be issues you hear about Dan O'Bannon coming into this. And uh, for all intents and purposes, Dan O'Bannon had no other place on set. Like Dan O'Bannon didn't have to be involved with Jack nor shit with alien <laughs> at this point. Uh, really? And it seemed like Scott, it, straight up Scott in the commentary talks about, and maybe this is a better point for later, but he says that he always felt like he was searching for Dan O'Bannon's approval on the movie, and he's not sure that he ever got it, and he, it was, it's, which is sad, but he said he loved Dark Star. You know, Dan had had experience directing there or just like in his collaboration with John Carpenter, and he wanted to live up to... He thought a lot of John Carpenter. He wanted to live up to what Dan was expecting. He said that he always felt that Dan's innermost feeling was to be the director, like that he wanted to take control of the whole shot, the whole shoot. He knew coming in that Scott wasn't a sci-fi fan. Um, like initially, he was just doing this because, as we discussed last episode, Justin mentioned that Star Wars had just happened, so sci-fi was hot. And he knew that Scott was like the fifth choice of directors and uh, Scott knew that he was the fifth choice, but he wanted to honor uh, the vision of the original screenwriters. And uh, he, he, he knew, he knew that he had initially uh, Ronald Shusset's struggle with that one. (laughs) I I do struggle with it every time he had his approval. (laughs) He gave him a lot of great feedback, but Dan O'Bannon was not so forthcoming with a lot of approval. And so yeah. it, it, it was kind of sad hearing please. that. I mean, O'Bannon seems like a tough guy to please, honestly, especially when something is like his, his baby, you know, and, and that's what he, it feels like alien is. And he felt like he, I mean, I think it might stem from the fact that he got fucked over so bad by John Carpenter that he doesn't want to go through that again. He doesn't want another director fucking him over and taking all of the credit for something that is rightfully at least, somewhat his yeah and i think i think he spent most of his career afraid that that was going to happen and unfortunately it did kind of continue to happen over and over to him anyway so here we are and uh ridley scott's on board he's he's quite the character himself and he gets to uh, choose his cast which like i said he he views as like 50 percent of the movie right there just as yes. far as getting this right so as we mentioned uh in our last episode in O'Bannon's earliest versions of the script, the crew of the Nostromo was all male. Uh, but he and Shusette later wrote the roles that were more more generic, uh, even putting a note in the script. If you look at the, the script, and I'm not sure if this was a note by O'Bannon and Shusette or by Hill and Guiler, but there's a note on the script that says the crew is unisex and all parts are interchangeable for men or women. So this gave Scott and his casting director the freedom to interpret the characters however they wanted. Do you know what's weird, by the way, side note, is that uh, on some, apparently on some anthology thing later, and I don't know if it's from this note and you saying that kind of made me think of this, but uh, they had included some note about Dallas and one of the other characters, and I can't remember who, afforded like transition in sex, like it had like uh, it was do you, do you know what it, yeah, it was Lambert, uh, Veronica Cartwright's character. Um, and it's in it's in aliens when you see there's something about when you when you see I think the list of when in aliens when Ripley is being debriefed, I guess you see like a list of the 
Nostromo's crew and there's something about that, but it was, it was, I guess, written in James Cameron's like dossier character dossiers. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So you, what you can read, I think on the alien or the aliens, like the, that quadrilogy box set or whatever, but yeah, uh, uh, the Lambert role was written as, as a, uh, as a trans character. That's interesting. I just, yeah. uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just thought that was, I had never, I had never known that before until like yesterday. I think I read that. That's cool. Yeah. So talking about the cast, the, uh, the Nostromo's captain, one of the first roles to be cast was Tom Skerritt, uh, as Dallas Skerritt had actually originally read the screenplay early on in the film's development. Uh, he was approached pretty early on, but he turned it down because he was unimpressed with the writing quality of the script and unimpressed with the film's budget, which at that point they were, you know, envisioning as a Roger Corman low budget horror movie. Because he thought, he said this in an interview, he's like, I thought it was going to end up looking like an Ed Wood movie. If you try to do a sci-fi movie on this kind of budget, it's going to look like Plan 9 from Outer Space. But then after the screenplay was rewritten and the budget was expanded, he was approached again, and then he signed on. He, he saw the improvement and saw the potential of the project. I saw the name Harrison Ford was tossed around in a couple of places, but I couldn't ever like, find like a verification from someone. I mean, I'm sure in, in 1977 Hollywood, after American Graffiti and Star Wars had come out, Harrison Ford's name was probably on every casting director's list for any role. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. probably makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, and I also see something I was trying to like find more information about, but apparently Garrett like pulled that thing of like when he came back in of asking for a percentage of the profits too yeah. from this, uh, which may have which, been the case. But uh, Ridley says that he just loved how Scarrett chose to play Dallas. Just that very like chill. Yeah. Just that he was laid back with yeah. everybody. He felt like everybody else would have taken this role and played him as like very brute and forceful and just rugged or something. And Scarrett played him with this like real, like just easygoing personality. And like he tried to stay out of arguments and just, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And just he thought that was very really, non confrontational. Yeah. Yeah. Just there to just there to do the job, get the job done. So for the role of Ripley, Scott, Scott wanted that character to be female and, and cast. And that role was a 29-year-old off-Broadway actress by the name of Sigourney Weaver. Uh, Weaver had, uh, she didn't really have any film experience before this. She she appears very briefly in, I think it's uh, Annie Hall, uh, the Woody Allen movie. She appears in like one scene, but she was primarily a stage actor and not a very well-known one at the time. And she had actually originally been considered for the role of Lambert, but when she auditioned, uh, Ridley Scott actually encouraged her to take the lead role. Yeah, you know, Scott swears he knew Weaver like right at the beginning, like the second she walked in, he swears he was sold on her. And Weaver said she was wearing her hooker boots that day, so that's probably why. But uh, there <laughs> well, were, I mean, she's already like six, uh, like six feet, six one. She's really tall, so maybe if with added heels on, she probably would have looked pretty imposing. Yeah, um, there there were rumors, you know, again about like somebody like Meryl Streep was pretty close or something like that. But I don't know. In the in the stuff I saw, Scott was adamant that he knew it was going to be Sigourney Weaver right when he saw her, uh, and that he thought the he felt like one of the master strokes of this movie was uh, making her the leader, like the the final person, like the the one in charge, like just her presence and authority that she carries. And uh, that in most movies, she might be like one of the first to go, like in a normal horror movie. But like in this one, she's like, she's the, 
guilty person. Uh, well, what, what's interesting about that is that she is not like a, any any kind of leader or even a main character for the first 40 minutes of the movie, probably. Yeah. She has these moments of like... Yeah, but she she barely speaks early on in the movie. Nothing that would indicate, if you've never seen the movie, that she would end up being the main character. Yeah, yeah. It's like she slowly... like pushes her way in but yeah yeah towards the time where they finally come back from the alien spaceship there's there's the moments where you can see like little details like she obviously like while everybody's investigating the ship she doesn't like ash she doesn't trust ash for some reason and uh by the way side note i have uh my dog is named ripley i just wanted to throw that out there based on (laughs) this character uh (laughs) i also have a cat named ash but that was from evil dead but (laughs) <laughs> for the for the sake of this episode it nice. could be based on this android they also not tend to fight be. with each other um <laughs> anyway uh that says that the studio like for a little while some of the people from the studio when they were watching the dailies didn't even like sigourney weaver that much like they thought she was like underplaying it too much like mm-hmm. that she didn't uh they were like she needs to be I don't know something more. And he said he he like he actually went to bat for like talked about that he and Scott all thought it was like, man, look at her eyes though. Like the eyes is where it's at. And he said he used the Orson Welles quote uh, when he was talking about Gary Cooper. Apparently, he said the that camera either loves you or it doesn't. All in the eyes. And he was like, Gordy Weaver just had something about her just in her face. Weaver even to- tells a story about being in the like when the the, sitting with the casting director and Scott's like asking her like what's what do you think this movie's like what do you feel about this and she's like I don't know it feels really bleak she said the casting director was like sitting over next to her like no 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 no, no. just shut up just shut up but like Scott's like <laughs> I mean that's it though that's that's what this <laughs> you, is you got it that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> But but another so, thing they did was they ran through like uh stuff I, I I didn't know this until I was watching the commentary that they brought in like a bunch of girls from the offices and had her run through lines and like watched her act out like one of the scenes or something and asked the women what they thought about Sigourney Weaver and people were like compared to Jane Fonda there were like other comparisons but like some of the women were just like wow she seems tough you know and they actually took that as even more encouragement that we've got the right person that was like the women are behind this yeah. one that's cool the thing that stuck out to me was when uh when the crew is coming back from the alien ship and she's keeping them in quarantine but Ash lets them in her voice is so calm you see her kind of stepping into that leadership role of hey i know this is going to be scary yes he's you know got this thing attached to his face but we have to maintain the quarantine and then later when she starts hollering at different members of the crew like you see the range and just she becomes she gets you know this leadership role thrust upon her and uh and it's it's really fascinating to just watch the eyes. I mean, if you watch her eyes throughout this entire show, it's really fantastic. I mean, she 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 portrays more authority than Dallas ever did. Oh yeah, you know? absolutely. Like she absolutely. she has more leadership qualities that we see here than Dallas ever did. Mm-hmm. And I think that moment you're talking about where she's refusing to let them on the ship, that's like the first step of hey, she's making a better decision than than Dallas is yep. uh, as the captain, because she's following protocol regardless. And, you know, it turns out when you break quarantine, bad shit happens. Yeah. Who'd have thought? 
Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you got something behind that, Justin. <laughs> so she had she had uh, originally been called in to play to play Lambert, but got cast as as Ripley. Veronica Cartwright had originally auditioned for Ripley. And she got cast as Lambert, which is, oh. I thought was pretty fun. So, uh, and then of course, as Brett, one of the Nostromo's engineer, is the great Harry Dean Stanton, yes. uh, who is just one of the all-time, just one of my favorite actors. I just love that guy. I love his face. Everything about has, him just seems cool, right? He's so cool, man. Right. He really is. Ridley Scott and says then, his very first words, Harry Dean Stanton's first words to him during the audition were, uh, during the audition. So I feel like you've got to know a little bit about what you're doing when you come into yeah. audition. But he said, Harry Dean Stanton's first words to him during the audition were, I don't like science fiction and I don't like monsters. <laughs> <laughs> but then, but then Ridley Scott's like, yeah, neither do I. <laughs> Scott said he was amused by him and yeah. he could, he ended up trying to convince Harry Dean Stanton to take the role. Uh, yeah. but that, that really was scott's response to that he's like neither do i but i think i can make this one work <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like i mean even during the commentary like harry dean stanton's just like so laid back he's in there with like his little sections or with like tom scarrett and uh cartwright they're they're like talking about how stanton's like i just remember this one time where my character would say right after every right. time this guy said something so i'd say yeah. right and then right. yeah and he's like, I just thought that was a nice little touch that he'd be like busy doing other stuff. And he'd just say right all the time. And then one time, <laughs> like, I think he was talking to uh, Scary. He's like, and then you were like in the middle of like this, the scene. You were like, why do you keep saying right after everything he says? And I'm like, why don't you go fuck yourself? <laughs> and then Scarrett stood up and was like, if he gets to change lines, then I get to change my lines. And then Scott's like, all right, everybody calm down, Harry. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> oh man, that's great. I love I really love Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. So the Nostromo's Scott, other engine. Well, I just was gonna say one other thing that I thought was very interesting is Scott said he was like also the nicest guy in the world. That like there's the scene where like they're doing the whole, you know, the the whole scene with the water coming down and the chains and everything, which by the way, Scott says he fought for. Everybody was like, This scene makes no sense. Like, what room is this in a ship that water's pouring down and there's yeah, chains hanging everywhere? It's Scott's like I'm gonna oh, assume it's shit. condensation from the cooling. That's what he said. Yeah, yeah. He says okay. condensation. And who gives a shit? It's a cool looking yeah, scene. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said that uh, they got him to play all of this up. And by the way, on the special edition, there's a scene there that's cut out in the normal version where the alien is sitting on the chains, like yeah. curled up, just like watching him the whole time. And it's pretty fucking wicked. I, that's the one scene from the director's cut. We'll, we'll talk more about that later. But that's the one scene I'm like, that's pretty, it's pretty fucking wicked. Anyway, he said that they killed him. And everything was done, and he was just like uh, Harry Dean Stanton. The only thing he ever, only feedback he ever from that point on got from Harry Dean Stanton was Harry Dean Stanton walked up to him and was like, "Hey, man, thank you so much for doing all those close-ups of my face." <laughs> he was just That's like, cool. All right. <laughs> he's like, so he's really pleasant. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> he was just happy we took close-ups of him. So the Nostromo's other engineer, Parker, was played by. Uh, the Yafet Koto, the late great Yafet Koto, just uh, died what, about two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, uh, at the age of eighty-one, uh, he he is. I love, I love. There's another actor. I just love him. 
I mean, this is probably his most well-known role, I guess. Uh, but he, a few years earlier, he had been the villain in James Bond and uh, Live and Let Die, which is not the best James Bond movie. It is the best James Bond theme song. Uh, but Live and Let Die is, it's a fun movie, but it's got some, it, it's one where they try to take some like black exploitation elements to it. Uh-huh. And then he plays Mr. Big, turns into Mr. Big at the end, which was like, I think Rick Baker's very first makeup job. And it's not very good. I totally forgot <laughs> but, about that, but yeah. yeah. But that's Yafet. And he, I mean, he's a, he's incredible. He's so, there's something really commanding about his presence, but he's so natural. That's what is all of this cast. I think is they, they bring a natural like element to their performances that they feel like they feel real part of yeah. it's because of how they look, but you know, because they don't look like your typical Hollywood cast, but they, they all have this way of performing that feels just very real. Like you mm. believe that these guys have lived together for months and months on a spaceship together. He was known to be kind of difficult on set and he would antagonize other actors like purposely to get a performance out of them, like specifically Sigourney Weaver. He would try to, act, you know, get her energy level up, especially like in the scene where he says, uh, like, I'm, I'm just for killing the goddamn thing, you know, where they're like going back and forth. He they would he, he was like in, intentionally antagonizing her uh, to get her angry and sounding angry during that scene. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was actually about to break that up that I saw later that that apparently was something he and Scott had talked about that, like he was that Scott had instructed him during that seed standing around like to keep cutting her off interrupt her like in the middle of her speaking her lines like you know like yeah. try to yeah see that with scene, her. when <laughs> i when i mentioned last week about some of the stuff felt really natural that's the scene i i had in mind and it was just like was that scripted because that yeah. boy that feels so real <laughs> it does it's it's really good yeah but uh ronald shusset says that what time during the filming, like they're standing there and Yafet came up to him. and was just like, thank you so much for this. Do you know, I've been waiting 15 years for this. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I've been waiting 15 years to be in one of the all time great movies. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's he quite a compliment. Right <laughs> <laughs> and I just tell. thought that was awesome. And he, he and then Justin says the same thing. He was just like the, the foresight on him. <laughs> like it was just, it yeah. was really incredible. Wow. That's crazy. And then, of course, we've got John Hurt cast as Kane. John Hurt, another actor who wasn't very well-known at the time. Of course, he's incredibly well-known now. Yeah. Uh, it looks Kane's like a being, damn kid here. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. I mean, he, he, he looks <laughs> super he young looks, here. He looks younger than he does as, like, Ollivander and Harry Potter. Or, well, sure, sure. <laughs> but he's 39 here, and he looks he looks older than 39 in this movie to me. Uh, he's That's a... Because I'm 39, and I feel like I look younger than what John Hurt looks like in this movie. He looks like he's had a harder life than I have at this point <laughs> in his life. He was a, he was one of those guys they went after too. Like they they tried to get him, and then well, he, he wasn't originally cast, right? Yeah, I mean they they were they wanted him, and he couldn't do it because he had a job, uh, and so they ended up hiring this guy uh, John Finch, and uh, Finch ended up getting sick right before they started filming and uh, while, while they were filming or while they were filming had diabetes yeah. they found out he had diabetes oh geez and he had to go yeah, off i mean the movie um, ridley like, scott tells a story uh, sorry to interrupt you but ridley scott tells a story where john finch they're actually filming a scene with him and he just has no energy and like looks awful he's like yellow and and ridley scott says they they stop the take and they're like are you okay and he's like 
I am not okay. Like I feel awful. And they had to like lift him out of the seat Whoa. to help him offset. But yeah, he ended up finding out he had diabetes and I guess he, his blood sugar was low and he ended up dropping out of the film because of it. So then what they ended up doing is like, I mean, cause John Hurt was supposed to be filming this role in Africa in South Africa. He had been confused. He thinks with John Hurd, uh, you know, like Home Alone, who had he been did other very... stuff besides Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> but that you you know what I'm talking about when yeah, I yeah, say yeah. the dad in Home Alone. Yeah, um, yes. <laughs> uh, but he said that he was on a like blacklist and and like like or he he couldn't go to work in South Africa. I, I'll just be honest. I'll be straight up. I felt weird about saying the blacklist in Africa, all of the same thing. So, (laughs) (laughs) but he was on a list. Like he couldn't act in Africa. Like he couldn't come work there because Heard had been very vocal about opposing apartheid. And so they didn't want him there. So Hurt was like, I also opposed it, but like, I don't (laughs) think he's like, I wasn't on a list. Like I hadn't been like, overly like protesting it or anything like Hurt has. So I think that's where the confusion was. Anyway, Hurt couldn't do the job. And so when Scott and stuff found out about that, they approached Hurt again and came and got him and talked to him like the night of, like he literally like drove all night that night oh, after wow. they got the call and, and came and worked on it. Well, yeah, like, well, Ridley Scott went to his house and they like went and gave him like a pitch you know, no time to like read the script. He's like, I, I, he pitched the film to him and John Hurt was, you know, he liked it and he was like, okay, let's do this. I'm, you know, when do I start? And Ridley Scott's like, no, tomorrow morning. <laughs> so, <laughs> he, so he went on set the next day and not met any of the other crew members or anything at that point. And wow. Uh, for one of probably the most well-known roles of his career. And then you had Ian Holm cast as Ash, the, the cyborg science officer on the Nostromo. Spoiler. Uh, well, we're hoping everyone has watched the movie at this point, <laughs> but Ian Holm was another guy who, you know, we know him now cause he, he was in you know, the Terry Gilliam movies, the Hobbit and all that stuff. Right. But at the time he was pretty much just a stage actor. He'd done a little bit of television here and there, but he was mostly a stage actor. Uh, and then we, we really have to mention a guy named Balaji Bodejo. So this mm-hmm. is an actor who he, well, he is the actor who plays the alien. And he was a Nigerian artist who was working as a graphic designer in London when a member of Ridley Scott's casting team spotted him in a pub. And at six foot nine, he was picked to play the part due largely to his height. And he was very thin and had very long legs. So Alien, uh, you know, is really, his own, he's not like an actor. He's not a stunt man. He didn't go on to have a big stunt career. Alien is his only film credit. Yep. <laughs> and his, his family would later like reveal that he actually returned to Nigeria in 1980 right after this movie and opened his own art gallery there where which he continued to run i think through his death he died uh, a, a few he died pretty young i believe i forget why but mm. yeah i mean that's another stellar casting choice because just you know you, you can't just cast anybody in that role or it's going to look like a man in a suit because of his proportions because he is very thin very very tall uh, very long limbs like he even when you put a, the man in a rubber suit 
it doesn't look like just a guy in a suit, you know? Right. Yeah, it's it's so weird. Like I, I kept seeing his height listed everywhere from six nine to seven one. So I never like could figure out either way. That's exactly incredibly. He, he he's a he's a very tall man, and uh, yeah, supposedly they they had him do some uh, like tai chi and mime classes or something to kind of learn how to slow down his movements a little bit yeah. uh, as they were getting him in there. But yeah, I mean, you, you can find quotes from him from like right around the time after the movie where. You know, he says like acting wasn't really his calling necessarily, but he's going to go back into graphic art and uh, he's like, unless another movie comes along. So it seems like he's like open to the idea. But uh, anyway, poor guy could not sit down. They didn't realize that till they were already filming. He had that big tail tail on the back of his suit. (laughs) Finally, somebody noticed they're like, hey, man, uh, guy can't sit down. So they had to build like a special swing for him on set that he could go sit in. (laughs) higher or wooden plank (laughs) but 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 at this time you know with star wars and everything i mean the studio had pitched people like peter mayhew and stuff for this role and uh so it's interesting they found this guy and just out of nowhere he's like beating out peter mayhew to like play this role just uh which i mean no it's perfect the the thing with this cast i mean this cast is incredible like i said they they bring a really natural vibe to it in, in their performances but i think also it's because they're not like they're all they're not like a bunch of young kids, you know. Uh, Sigourney Weaver was twenty nine at the time, and she was the youngest of the cast. I think Veronica Cartwright was just a little a few months older than her. Uh, Tom Skerritt's like forty six, you know. Like Harry Dean Stanton's in his early fifties at this point. If you were casting this movie now, if Hollywood was making this movie now, everyone in this on the crew of the Nostromo would be like under twenty five. And just sexy movie star looks instead of like looking yeah. like fucking Ian Holm. Well, that was what that's that's what I my first thought was like they're actors, not movie yeah. stars. They're, yeah, but in, they but in, in like, that in that they don't look. They look like they look like a group of they like real people. They they look like they're working in space, <laughs> truck drivers in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I mean, and I think that's Ridley Scott said that's fifty percent of the job. And by casting like real actors in these roles, like that leaves him to work on the the visuals and the and the pacing and all the other things that make this movie great. Because he already cast great actors who, yeah, I mean, he still worked with the actors to get certain things out of their performances, but he didn't have to work as hard at that because they were already good at what they did. Ridley Scott seems fun too, that he has like all of these other ideas, like while he's filming the movie, you know, stuff that he's not even putting in the movie itself. But, you know, like kind of the opposite of actually what Dan O'Bannon kind of talked about, like, he, you know, in the last episode we mentioned, like, he was just like, I don't give a shit where they come from or like whatever. Scott talks about like filming and having ideas that are like there's, there's these interpersonal relationships that they all have to that he thinks they should kind of convey. Like, I think he even had at one point like a sex scene pitch from like Dallas and uh, Ripley that they would have they would have had a relationship like a, this is like a studio of, note. What's that? This is a note from the studios. This was like, Scott yeah. saying like he he actually like had thought of that. Like he had, oh, he thought of that. He okay. thought of that. That that like he wanted to show like some of the passing of the time, like some of the stuff later. And I think later in Prometheus, he kind of plays on that a little bit, like with uh, the captain there. And uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Anyway, the better Prometheus. Less, less said about Prometheus, the better. 
<laughs> but uh, just that they'll pass the time. He says even, I, I mean, and I swear this is in the commentary, he says even in, like, with Veronica Cartwright and Gordy Weaver that they'd have, like, had like a deeper relationship that they were, he said that they <laughs> even that pitched like, <laughs> yeah, that uh, well, he was just saying like early on he had considered like maybe one of the first lesbian like couples or something like just early oh. on. Or maybe they weren't even couples, but uh, just that they we're open to that kind of relationship when you spend hey, like years in space, you know? seven people on a ship together for years. Not a lot of options, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. it. That's exactly what you say. This is like just different ways. They pass the time basically. Yeah. So as the film moved towards production, O'Bannon's influence on the project waned. Walter Hill had trimmed his script, even changed the names of some of the characters, changed most of the dialogue. And Scott was, Ridley Scott was fine with those changes, but he he still wanted O'Bannon to take another look. He still valued Dan O'Bannon's input. And O'Bannon said, quote, so I went through and repaired some of the damage, but because I had been ordered not to go back to the original, some of the best moments were lost. It was a sad degrading of my screenplay. I was convinced the picture was ruined. You know, even at this point in time, before shootings are just about to begin, like he, Dan O'Bannon is still... Again, I, I, and this is me being an armchair psychologist on this, but I think it's because of the way that he got screwed with John Carpenter that he's just overprotective of his work. I mean, honestly, if you're a screenwriter in Hollywood, that's the nature of the job. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you like you write. I mean, it. they tell they tell any any you know writing class that you sit in is like, look you know, when it comes to screenplays or comic book scripts or anything like that, it's a collaborative effort. Your yeah. final draft is probably going to change. And it's yeah. just, it's just the nature of it. It's not, it's not meant to be a personal attack, but it's, you know, those changes most of the time end up making it better. I mean, some of the time, <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they make it most of the time. Sometimes they make them better. Sometimes it's better. <laughs> well, it's good to have, it's good to have that, it's good to have that objective third party to say, hey, this may this may not work. This one thing you've got here might not work. It might be better to change it to X. You know, that's always right. good to have. Yeah, yeah. It's always good to have other people, you know, giving you notes or, or making suggestions. But I think he felt slighted. He felt like they were taking mm-hmm. something he'd worked very hard on and turning it into something that he had never intended. Ah. So principal photography for Alien took place at Shepperton Studios near London from July to October of 1978. And O'Bannon was there. He hung around on set, uh, getting into everyone's business and even sometimes giving orders because I guess he thought he was the director. (laughs) He didn't like, he actually uh, at first did not like the direction of the film. He had envisioned kind of a fast paced comic book style, but Scott's style was more atmospheric and a slower, more methodical pace than kind of what O'Bannon had uh, envisioned when he was writing the script. Mm. Sometimes they'd be watching dailies and he would yell too slow. (laughs) Scott would have to like take him to the side and be like, Hey, you know, this, that I appreciate the criticism, but that might be better if you we were to do that in pile in, in private instead of just you know screaming it out in the middle of dailies. <laughs> now there are later interviews with O'Bannon where he says that you know he was watching dailies and he started to see the movie come together and 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 was happy with what he was seeing. Yeah, it's just tough. You got to imagine that's just frustrating for Scott. Like I said, he was he was secretly had this desire to please O'Bannon, and there's just no pleasing O'Bannon. 
<laughs> they're pleasing Dan O'Bannon. Uh, Dan O'Bannon, he would he would make suggestions and offer criticisms, uh, none of which endeared him to Scott or anyone else on set, but it didn't get him like kicked off. Like they still let him hang around. What did get him kicked off of the set was when he thought that his typewriter had been stolen. So he he would have he had like a secretary there and he would dictate his thoughts to the secretary. She'd type them on his typewriter. When he went, he went into his office one day and found his typewriter missing and, and he got upset and he stormed into a meeting between Scott and the producers and he saw his typewriter in there in that meeting. And, and then in, in typical Dan O'Bannon fashion, he'd let his temper get the best of him. He, he flew into a rage about his stupid typewriter and Scott told him to calm down. He's like, we just borrowed it, man. We're, we're going to give it back. We just needed to use a typewriter. Uh, but O'Bannon was not easy to settle down once he got into a fury. And so a few days later, he got kicked off the set and was sent back to the U.S. Wow. Jeez. Yeah, he was hypercritical, like on the set from everything I saw. And just, uh, I mean, although, I mean, he, you know, he he defended a lot of aspects of the movie that would become like the biggest parts of it. Like we talked about with the face hugger thing. He brought on Ron Cobb, who like designed the interiors, that kind of thing. Had to, you know, he, he was a big advocate for H.R. Giger's designs that were used and, and that whole thing. And, uh, but he would, he would nitpick a lot was their their problem with him and and like justin said until he lost his temper with scott scott was his biggest advocate and yeah finally lost his patience with him they sent him on like producers none of them were like uh, big fans of him being on set at all he had tried to like uh after the first week of shooting he was like wanting to like get copies of the dailies or like view the dailies that uh, gordon carroll was the name i saw is like refused. gordon carroll he, he is part of the uh brandy wine productions with, right with right he said he refused them it was like you're not getting these uh, yeah but o'bannon got around that by going into the projectionist booth and watching the dailies on his own <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he's like if they won't let me in there i'll just go and watch it with the projector but those guys in walter hill and everything they had no respect for o'bannon they ignored mm-hmm. him and what it gave him no credit <laughs> like after the movie became famous yeah. like they they all were not fans scott still speaks fondly of him but yeah just. Scott, Scott was a fan. But, but before he went home, though, O'Bannon did have one more crucial contribution to the film. So he was worried that Ridley Scott wasn't in tune with the horror of the day. Like he, which he was right. Ridley Scott was not a horror guy. He was not a horror filmmaker. He wasn't a sci fi filmmaker. But, uh, you know, he felt that in order for Alien to be successful, it had to have some shock value. You know, it had to have something to like really get in the audience's face. So O'Bannon set up a screening of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love how we're going full circle on this. Yeah. He said, he said to Scott, he said, you're not going to like this film, but just see it. He's like, you just, you just have to watch it. So Scott watched the film in a screening room on the Fox lot. Walter Hill joined him. Walter Hill actually walked into the screening room. He's like, hey, what you got going on here? What's, what are you watching? And he's got like a Coke and a cheeseburger. And he's going to eat. And at the end of the movie, they, the two of them sat. They watched the whole movie. At the end of the movie, he had not touched his Coke, had not touched his cheeseburger. Like They were both entranced with this movie. And wow. that kind of got Scott in, like, it kind of got him to think, like, we have to have that something that, like, really just grabs the audience. So when it was over, Scott was ready to shoot that scene 
that scene that that, that shocking scene in Alien, mm. uh, the biggest scene, the most well known scene in Alien, and that was the chestburster scene. Yeah, uh, Scott says the thing that nailed me to a wall was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was so shocking to me. The places they went that no one else had ever gone before. Uh, he said the things the things he remembers during that time were were that movie, and he said the other film that I w- that he would give credit to is The Exorcist. He said he he did see what Friedkin had done, and yeah. uh, he thought he had nailed it too. Uh, mm. He said to just take it like a just a mundane, unlikely scenario, and then making it like turn into this terrible like scenario, like just uh, just uh, whatever. He just thought they, these two films were like iconic which they are and uh yeah it was right. it's just like uh it's like it's kind of sad because it, it, he, he talks a little bit about it there just like it's kind of sad because there's so many horror movies and people just settle for less he's like but you gotta keep making movies i guess but he's like those guys there was real art there with what yeah. they were doing so in the script the chestburster scene all it said was like this thing emerges it didn't have any like big it didn't have a lot of like detail on what the thing looked like or, or anything like that. And the cast, when they were filming it, they had no idea really how the scene was going to play out. Uh, and this was intentional. Like Scott wanted genuine terrified reactions from the cast. So they, they kind of got John Hurt set up separately. Everyone else was uh, out of the room. They were away from the set. They put him in like an artificial chest. Like it's an effect that we've seen before, like on our Tom Savini series with the zombie movies, you know, where you've got, an artificial chest and the real head and shoulders coming out. Mm. So they mm-hmm. did that. And then the, then they bring the cast in. Uh, the cast doesn't know what's going on. They don't know how the scene's going to play out. Cause again, the script is pretty vague about it. And this, the, the way the cast describes it is that they walk onto the set and John Hurt's laying there, you know, with this, out of, sticking out of the table and the whole crew is in raincoats. <laughs> Everyone's wearing raincoats and then there's this horrible smell of formaldehyde in the in the in the room. We mentioned this earlier, maybe on our last, I think it was last week's episode. And instead of using prosthetic effects, because uh, Scott was worried they would look too fake, because again, this is late seventies, you know, prosthetic effects aren't as advanced as they are now. Uh, they were using organs from a butcher shop. So I think Todd, you mentioned, you know, the, the face hugger later on when they when they yeah. examine it, and yeah, those were oysters. Well, they did that in for like the innards for John Hurt, uh, for the inside of the egg, oh. you know, the egg, when the, the face burst or uh, the, the face hugger hits him, that was the inside of the egg was like a uh, cow's stomach and tripe. Yeah. It was like the lining of it. They called it the, uh, stitching or something like that. The tri- tripe is stomach is stomach lining. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then what came up out of the thing and hit him in the face was like an intestine. It was a sheep's intestine, yeah. Yeah. So that Ooh. the little thing that jumps out, and they they sh- they used like an air cannon, just basically shoot it out, and then slowed it down and reversed it, and uh, so that you could because it was too fast when they originally filmed it. Wow. But yeah, so they're using you know obviously there are prosthetics of the face hugger itself is like something they built, but they're using real organs and stuff. So they go into this room where they're using that for John Hurt's innards. And it just stinks because they've kept the stuff in formaldehyde and it's just, it's just organ meat from the right. local butcher in, in London. So they start filming it. Again, the cast has no idea what's going on. Uh, the alien starts to come out. And you, you, you can And you can watch this footage, this behind-the-scenes footage. Uh, but the alien starts to come out, but it won't burst through the shirt. They can't get it to go through the shirt, so it's just like blood spatter. Wow. And then they tried it again, 
And when it does burst out, like nobody in the cast was really ready for it. And so you, the, the look you see on their faces of them just being shocked and terrified is real. That's real shock. That's what Scott wanted. He wanted a true reaction from them. Uh, and Veronica Cartwright, like she actually got like a spray of blood hit her in the face and she actually like fainted. She passed out from the shock of it. Jeez. And her reaction is my favorite. I mean, the look on her face when that happens in the film is like, you can tell like she is truly like terrified for a moment. <laughs> she says like they went in there that she was like, there there's, we'll do it like a quick take. There's like four cameras. We'll just get this done. You'll probably get a little blood on you. She was like, we didn't even know what was happening. And she's like, they had a fucking jet pointed at my face. <laughs> and Harry Dean Stan is like there and, and he says this, and I can believe 100% it's true because I imagine Harry Dean Stanton just being high as fuck or something on set. He's just like, I thought it was real. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> like, just real. <laughs> <laughs> the movie filmed on three principal sets. Uh, there, there was the surface of the alien planetoid, the interiors of the Nostromo, and then the derelict spacecraft. And they created these 124th scale miniatures of the planetoid surface and the derelict spacecraft. Those were created by the art director, uh, Les Dilly, based on H.R. Giger's designs. And then the, the art director would scale them up to be built out of wood and fiberglass on set. And then they brought in like tons of sand and plaster and fiberglass and rock and gravel into the studio. Because remember, this is uh, at Shepard and Studios, not on any kind of location, uh, to create the planetoid's desert surface. That Giger design for the ship was... Uh... From Necronomicon, uh, Scott says they found that in in Necronomicon. He was like, he was like sitting on the set, like, the like crescent moon shape. Yeah, shape. yeah. He says he, he was just thumbing through, and there was like a picture in there that was like an instrument, like a musical instrument. Guy Giger had drawn, and he just saw it as the ship. So like took it, you know, Ed to to get it mocked up and everything. I I love to, by the way, just. I, just the idea of like when he's shooting that, he thought that the model that they made wouldn't hold up. And this is, you know, since we're all about this crafty outside the box thinking like we were on Dark, Dark Star, I thought this was amazing. He said the model's not going to hold up to uh, criticism like on, on the look of it. So he said that he took a handheld camera, like just a standard handheld camera and filmed the model like up close and like, tried to make it wobbly and that sort of thing. And then he took that. It was shooting into the monitor and then he filmed the yeah. monitor of him like filming the model yeah, yeah. so that he could get the look of like through the helmets. It's you know, a like, cool shot. Yeah, uh, I know. I just thought that was amazing. I was like, he yeah. was like that, that I it just hearing him talk about that. I was like, that's fucking Fantastic. I would never think of shit like that. I guess yeah. that's why he's Ridley Scott and I'm not. And but. you're Gary Horn. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, no, that, I do. Cool I really stuff. do love that shot. I've, I have always loved that shot where it looks like you're looking at a television monitor, like footage of that. It just, there's something about it that feels very like found footagey, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 Very much. That I think is just really cool, you know? And, and also, with they, they built, they did build like, part of the exterior of the Nostromo, like full size. They built like the, the like feet that it like lands on. Mm. And when they were filming it, uh, Ridley Scott was not sure that it looked big enough. So we actually got his son and the son of the cinematographer to dress up in 
small spacesuits, like their size spacesuits, so that when he, when you see the astronauts outside on the planet's surface, it's actually the children because he wanted them to look smaller next to this giant thing. Same thing happens later on in the space jockey room. He did the same thing because he wanted the room to look bigger than it actually was. So he filmed children in their spacesuits. Well, J.J. Uh, Abrams did the same thing in uh, Star Trek in 2009. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. He shot, uh, he had uh, Kirk running away from a big alien chasing him on the snow. And uh, when you see him from the back, it's, it's a kid. Huh. Yeah. There's well, your Star but, Trek but, reference. I'm what? sorry. I don't want to get into a discussion on Star Trek. I was about to ask a question about it. And I was like, that'll take another five uh, minutes. No, no. Yeah. No. He gets paid to planet, uh, basically. It's where he meets Scotty. But no, I mean, uh, Spielberg does. You know, he, he uses a little person in the shark cage, like a smaller yep. shark cage with a little person in it with the... Well, that's because like, yeah, they were using a normal shark, shark and not a 2,000-pound uh, great white in that scene. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yes, yeah, sim- same concept. So eventually, Giger himself would also be a fixture on the set. He was no longer content to just simply mail in images of his artwork and get them stopped at customs at LAX. Uh, or in London at this point, he, he actually showed up. They had him working on set. He physically sculpted and painted sets for the film, like the space jockey room. Uh, he airbrushed the space, he carved and airbrushed the space jockey himself and airbrushed by hand that entire room himself. So essentially that set was one giant piece of Giger artwork created nice. by him, which is crazy. Yeah. It's insane to think about. Did it, it, uh, any of the pieces of the set survive? I doubt it. They were like fiberglass and stuff, so I don't know that they would have held up. I'm not really sure, though. Yeah, they should be in a in a museum somewhere. Smithsonian. (laughs) To 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 his credit, to to you know, like for what? Hopefully, Scott watched the 2003 commentary for the film. He Obana does in there talk about one of the great parts about it, and you kind of hinted at this earlier was that the atmosphere that Scott was creating. uh, Obana talks about like this guy's a master at that. And he says a horror movie without atmosphere isn't pleasing to watch. And Ridley Scott is a master of atmosphere. And uh, he says, he talks, he talks about in there that he remembers seeing Scott walking around the set. Uh, He had people with incense burners like going off uh, because he wanted to fill the area with a fog and, uh, and just to make the thick air, he said that Scott was like walking around himself with a piece of cardboard, like fanning it, you know, to try to make the room thick. And they said he didn't even understand what he was doing at the time. But then Scott started like clipping little lights in certain areas uh, and then filtering it with like this blue gray thing that he would put in in front of it. And he said that the result was it was like the color of a Giger painting. He's oh, like, wow. he, he just he thought it was magnificent that he just I mean, would have never thought of that stuff himself. Ridley Scott is, you know, like, like I said, I, I, I'm hit or miss on some of his films, but I think he is an incredible visual stylist. Uh, I've always thought that. And, and I think this is, I mean, incredible work that he's doing here because he just knew how to do it. And, and the thing is, the he shot most of this movie. I mean, his director of photography on this is Derek Van Lint, who... Uh, is is the credited cinematographer on this but truly like Ridley Scott was handling the camera himself for a lot of this film Uh, there are some like a lot of you know static shots close-up things like that that Van Lint would shoot but but Ridley Scott 
he wanted this kind of handheld look to a lot of the movie, which I think adds another level of kind of reality to it. There's oh, yeah. a lot of handheld camera work in this. And in those scenes, like Ridley Scott's got the camera on his shoulder. He's the one physically shooting that, even though he's not the credited director of photography, he was essentially a code director of photography because he's, he's shooting it all himself and he's very meticulous about how things look. And I think adding that, adding that bit of like fog, that bit of haze to the set adds a lot to it. Cause when you see light shine through it, it has a certain effect to it, but it also kind of covers up the limitations of some of the sets. Cause this movie was, it was $10 million. It started out as like 4.2 or something like that. And then Ridley Scott, who makes these meticulous uh, storyboards, he, he drew out storyboards for the entire film. And when he showed those, to executives at 20th Century Fox, they doubled his budget because wow. uh, they, they really saw how how much potential this had. But even so, $10 million for a space set movie, even in 1979, was fairly low budget. I mean, it was a it was a you know significant budget for what they were trying to do, but it wasn't like this was this wasn't Star Wars, you know. And they were building sets out of like pieces of you know airplanes and things like that and tubing and they they were assembling this out of junk essentially and trying to make it look like something else yeah and it's i don't know i think it's really cool the way that they got around that and i and i think it adds a lot of texture to the movie oh for uh, sure then you know gary mentioned earlier how they they uh ron cobb i guess his original design of the interior of the spaceship was more like straight lines and stuff they turned it into curving and uh, curving corridors a lot of corners and things like that well mm-hmm. when they built that set it was all one piece it was like you walked into these tunnels and you got lost you could get lost in there because it's all like those those cor- it's not like they're filming the same corner over and over like they f- built the interior of the spaceship Jeez. so when so actors would talk about like going in they would get turned around and get lost in there uh, when when you walked into that set, you were there, and there was no, there was like no way out. It was claustrophobic. Oh boy! <laughs> Talk about creating an atmosphere. Yeah, you know another person that was uh, on the set there that he he wasn't. I think he was uncredited. I'm pretty sure, but Scott brought in Anton First, who ends up doing like production design on Batman '89 and uh, Full Metal Jacket. And yeah. uh, he was he was on the set of Alien, like helping out. His big creation was the whole egg layer for oh wow for that area. Like he nice. he created that and uh, the like the what they he and Scott envisioned that like the placenta over the eggs was that layer of fog and light that you see that like uh, hurt falls through mm. at, at one yeah. point. He's like looking down through. Uh, they did that because like the who was working on a uh, stage show next door. Yeah, yeah. They borrowed their lasers. <laughs> so they borrowed their lasers. <laughs> nice. And came through. That was Anton first, like went and got him and brought him over. They set that up. And uh, yeah, that was just uh, just cool. Man, it's so cool, like even seeing this stuff, like for instance, with the eggs and weird things you would not notice, like for instance, like when Hurt disturbs the egg the first time. If you look at it and you go back and see it, I have seen this movie like five times in the past week. But the water is going upwards yep. on the egg. Like yep. the droplets are going up towards yeah. the opening. It's because the egg's actually hanging upside down, technically. But it's just to to make it 
eerie and weird. weird. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yep. Just to make it a little extra weird. And inside, it's like a fiberglass egg. But when you see like the inside, it like lights up when he's shining on it. You can see the uh, face hugger in there. That's Ridley Scott's hand inside of it with a rubber glove, like moving his yeah, hand they, around. Well, they, that was a pickup shot after production that they decided they wanted to show the egg. And they built this clear fiberglass egg. And they and Ridley Scott just put on like rubber gloves and was flapping them back and forth, you know, to make it look like that. But you would, and even knowing that when I watched that scene in the movie, it, I can't, it doesn't look like hands. You, I can't yeah. Tell. You can't tell. Yeah. No. And uh, he says uh, also the egg opening was hydraulic and, and made with like metal and tension and like it opened up. He's like, but seriously, he's like, that was, that would take your fucking hand off. Yeah, he's like it was. He's like that was legit. (laughs) When Giger was designing those eggs, he originally had it as just like a single opening and like a like a vagina, and they're like, you can't, we can't do that. (laughs) Like we got to show this place, and we got to show this in places where like Catholic countries, they're not going to let us show this if if it's just a vagina opening. And he's probably thinking, well, what about the giant dick on the head of the main monster of the movie? But what he ended up doing is he he turned it into a cross. So it's a, so it's basically a cross shaped vagina on top of the eggs, and he perp- Giger, according to Giger, he says that he purposely did that. He's like, well, now it's double obscene. <laughs> well, no, no, but I, I was gonna say, I mean, a hundred percent. If you the more you hear Ridley Scott talk about this movie, he's fucking like he's just as much of a perv. Like he he tried he tried his hardest. He talks about it. He tried his hardest to get everybody naked in the opening scene. Like they were going to wake up and be everybody's butt ass naked. <laughs> and then like, they were like, no way can't do that. Then he's like, well, at least everybody's topless. And they're like, no, come on. Like <laughs> He's like, well, we'll take their nipples. <laughs> they're like, you gotta have shirts on. We're losing like five countries. You don't put fucking shirts on these people. And so <laughs> it's just like constant. And, and like he, he straight up. I mean, he straight up talks about with Ash. And like his interaction with uh, Ripley, like where he pins her down and like shoves the magazine in her mouth. He's just like, he's getting off on this. This is him. Yeah. Like, he's just like, he's, he's always wanted to shove something in her mouth. And like, he just doesn't have the tool. So he's going to use this magazine. And that, that's mm-hmm. really Scott talking. So like, he's, I don't know. I saw, I saw articles where people like tried to say like when Ash blew up, you know, it's all white. And all the white liquid coming out of him (laughs) that's intentional and i don't know i think it is intentional i was about to say after seeing many interviews with ridley scott i'm like yeah probably like that just seems like ridley (laughs) scott he's the one hinting at lesbian relationships between cartwright and uh, sigourney weaver and like he also wanted to film the sex scene with dallas and like oh scott you're a horde ball too (laughs) (laughs) well that that scene with ash like the way they shot that is you know it's a it's a, it's kind of like it's fun. It's kind of like a lo-fi. You know, we we mentioned it earlier, but the inside of his like android, the parts that you see on the table, really was just like fiberglass, like like little marbles and pe- pe- pieces of like fiber optic and stuff like that. It's nothing like super fancy. And then they just covered the, it in like white milk. You know, I mean, there is an animatronic ash that you see in like one shot, but it's kind of as Ridley Scott would put it, was he, he calls it a little um, dodgy. That's the word that he calls it, a little dodgy. Same thing when you see the ash without the head that the arms are kind of flapping. It's like, yeah, the arms are a little dodgy, but, uh, but it, it works. I mean, and, and the effect is very simple. Of course, Ian Holmes head is through a table and they put the, the skin flaps where his neck is. 
and then change his voice. It's, it's, it's simple, but it's so, so effective. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it really is very, his whole, his whole reveal, I think is very well done where you just see that trickle of the milk on yeah. his forehead coming down. And you're, and as an audience member, if you've never seen the movie before, you're like, what the, what the fuck is going on? What, what's coming down off his head? And it's not until, uh, I think it's Yafet Koto uh, Parker that hits him in the head yep. and his head comes off, you know, and that you realize, Oh shit. Like, you know, there's nothing at all that indicates that he's a robot before that. But once that happens, it, it really pulls the rug out from under the audience. Mm-hmm. And of course that would become a staple in the entire franchise later on. Well, it's interesting too. Like, I mean, I think I mentioned it for, for the last episode, but just that even with that, just the outside the box thinking that Scott was like, we're not going to be able to, out technology this like what's a what's a robot look like what's a cyborg you know the the humanoid thing look like inside and he's just like well we just fill it with literal like caviar i think is in there too and stuff like that and so he's just like we fill it all with this and then you're just like well this is more technologically advanced than anything we would understand it's so so far advanced that we would recognize it as technology yeah it just doesn't even look (laughs) you know we can't explain that so yeah and then that that. works better than them trying to do like circuits and wires and stuff i agree i agree and it it was not an easy you know set to be on you've got these spacesuits like that they were wearing they were huge and thick and bulky and they initially had no venting in them i mean you think Dan O'Bannon could have been like, hey, we kind of ran into this issue on Dark Star, <laughs> but you got to let your actors breathe when they're wearing spaceships. So they would be just be breathing in their own carbon dioxide. And they actually had to keep nurses on hand with oxygen tanks in case the actors were to pass out. Same thing happened with the kids when they had the kids in the little tiny spacesuits. The kids were almost passing out until they invented like they inserted like a venting system into the spacesuits. Wow. So not an easy film to to you know, to work on. They but... figured out the ventilation with the kids. Yeah. Yeah. They figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> the film was edited by more. Terry. What? I said, then it mattered more. <laughs> <laughs> so the film was edited by Terry Rollins. Terry Rollins had been Scott's uh, editor on the duelist. And he and Scott intentionally left the pace kind of slow in order to build suspense for the scary scenes. And, and I, I mean, I think that's essential to the film's success. You know, I I don't think this is a slow movie in that it's boring at all. There's nothing boring about this movie. But I think that it it is methodically paced to where the suspense builds as the movie goes. It gets it it gets more and more intense as it goes until the by the final act, the tension is just unbearable, you know. And I think part of that is also that Scott shows us very little of the final alien form. I think that is a, a a very good decision on his part because early in the film you know you see the face hugger and you see the chest burster in very bright light harsh bright lighting you get a really good look at both of them and that's kind of a tease because you think that scott's going to do that with the the final form with the the, what would later be known as the xenomorph you think he's going to show us that in full light or you know a good shot of it and he never does he never gives us a really good shot of the final alien and by doing that, I think Scott keeps the audience wondering. He keeps us in suspense. He knows that our imagination is going to scare us more than anything he could show us. Uh, because, again, this movie shares a lot of DNA with Lovecraft, that fear of the unknown, you know, that mm. unknowable evil. 
Oh, and yeah. I think by not showing the alien that much, it it really plays into the uh, the psychology of the audience. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and from a production standpoint, it's probably a little bit better because I mean, didn't Spielberg do that with Jaws? Like, yeah, le- Spielberg I mean, did with Jaws. I mean, some of, of it, some of it was out of necessity, but, <laughs> but yeah, but, <laughs> but I but mean, yes, it, it worked very up, well. But it worked, it worked very it. well. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the original assembly cut for Alien was over three hours long. It was edited down to a final cut of just under two hours. One scene that was cut, Dallas and Brett are discovered by Ripley as she's about to escape the Nostromo. Uh, They're thought to be dead, but they've actually been cocooned by the alien. So O'Bannon had actually included this scene in his screenplay to indicate that Brett was becoming an alien egg, actually growing like a new face hugger inside of them. Then Dallas was going to be implanted by the resulting face hugger to grow a whole new alien. And the scene was cut out for a couple of reasons. One, Scott was unhappy with the effects. He he didn't think they would look realistic enough, but also because it slowed down the pace of the finale. Uh, Tom Skerritt would later say, he said, quote, the picture had to have that pace. her trying to get the hell out of there. We're all rooting for her to get out of there and for her to slow up and have a conversation with Dallas was not appropriate, which Mm I, I agree with because at that point in the film, you want her to keep moving, but yeah, a shortened version of that scene was reinserted into Ridley Scott's 2003 director's cut. So let's talk about the director's cut for a second. Cause Gary, did you watch this version? I know we we talked about it. You watched the director's cut. You watched both. Yeah. I watched both versions. Yeah. So the director's cut is not really a director's cut. So in 2003, 20th Century Fox was preparing the Alien Quadrilogy DVD box set, and they wanted to include alternate versions of all four films, director's cuts or alternate cuts of all four films. This is where the famous assembly cut of David Fincher's Alien 3 comes from. So they asked Ridley Scott to remaster Alien and create a director's cut. Now, there's no indication that the theatrical cut of Alien was not Ridley Scott's preferred version. That essentially was his director's cut. But even, even Scott says that the version that was on in this Alien Quadrilogy box set was just called a director's cut for marketing purposes because that was that's what was being done in the early 2000s. You had all these director's cuts and special editions coming out, and that was a selling point to a lot of people. So studios kept doing it even when this was not necessarily the preferred version of the film by the directors. Mm. Yeah, it's it's you know like you see this a lot of times even now like you said uh, but really Scott straight up like in the box set multiple times even in the accompanying booklets the commentary uh I believe even in the intro to the the special edition or the director's cut that he says there is no director's cut of this movie. Uh he was happy with the film as it was. He got to do yeah. what he wanted to do. Uh he said by 2003, there were things that, you know, after you've seen the movie for a quarter of a century, there's things you could tweak. Sure. Uh, there'd been seeds that people had seen on deleted seeds that fans had requested be added back in. And so he thought there were ways he could modify those and get them back in there. And so he decided to do it just to work with it, you know? But. Yeah. I mean, it's an alternate version of the movie. It's got alternate scenes. It actually, it's actually like a minute shorter, I think than the theatrical cut, but uh, it, it gave chan- fans a chance to see some material that they had not seen before reinserted into the film. And even though it's not necessarily like the fi- Ridley Scott's like final version of the film, but his version of the film is 
the one that came out in theaters in 1979, uh, as opposed to something like Blade Runner, where that's got like four different versions, and the version that came out in theaters was definitely not really Scott's version. Or uh, even I uh, saw I've, I've been watching through them and like Aliens. I mean, even that one, the director's cut of Aliens is, I think, James Cameron's preferred version of Aliens. Yeah. Like uh, the sequel, just he he thought they, had, you know, the the tendency was to cut movies down, and he had wanted his version to be longer, and they yeah. had made you know argued with him to trim it down. So even in that one, it is the preferred version. But at Alien, it's uh, Ridley Scott's pretty pretty straightforward about there there was he was he had no changes he wanted to make yeah i actually saw the um the the director's cut on the big screen it came out on halloween of 2003 they, they re, before the dvd box set came out they actually re-released it to theaters and i had a chance to see it it's actually the first and only time i've been able to see alien on the big screen so i've actually oh never seen the original theatrical cut on the big screen which i would love to do that's cool. Well, I my I watched the original cut. I actually have the big the big box set, and a friend of mine. Yeah, that's has the one a, we're talking about, the quadrilogy. Yeah, I've got the quadrilogy yeah. box set, and a friend of mine has an office space uh, at a local mill here, and a big white wall. So he brought a projector and threw it up on the wall. So we were watching it in probably ten or twelve feet wide, and nice. It you know it's not in the theater. But pretty close, and it was a lot of. It, we had a, right now. Yeah, and we had a lot of fun. That was it. Was a really great because uh, I don't think, I think one of our friends that we were with hadn't ever seen that before. Oh, so, wow. so it was it was a fun viewing experience. We had a good time. The film was released on May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy nine. It was a box office hit, broke records left and right. Uh, eventually, grossing one hundred and forty three million dollars worldwide. Uh, and but critical reception was actually initially mixed, believe it or not. Uh, at the time, a lot of critics weren't very kind to sci-fi movies, and this was no exception. Uh, but of course, now it's considered one of the greatest sci-fi movies ever made, one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Uh, even critics who gave it mixed or negative reviews upon its original release, guys like Leonard Maltin and, and Roger Ebert, later came to reassess it and recognize its greatness. I think Roger Ebert even did one of his great movies. Uh, columns on alien later on but not everyone has probably reassessed this movie and and seen it for the incredible piece of filmmaking that it is and i'm willing to bet if you were to uh you know scour the internet the deepest darkest corners of the internet you might find some people who have some unkind things to say about alien my first one that i read across was polly kale's review of it and uh wait (laughs) (laughs) no polly kale was very nice i just thought it was interesting i thought this would be fun to throw in here she says uh a quote from her review is it reached out grabbed you squeezed your stomach it's more gripping than entertaining but a lot of people didn't mind they thought it was terrific because at least they'd felt something they'd been brutalized wow uh, i thought that was uh an interesting thing from polly and kale but yeah there's some people that uh Apparently, we're not huge fans of Alien and uh, decided they needed to get online and type something up real quick because, (laughs) as it turns out, with most people on the Internet, somebody needs a nap. This first review is, I don't don't know, I can catch the name. That's one out of five stars. They said, uh, subject is... I'd rather not. And, uh, <laughs> and the review is, wow, 
what was all the hubbub about this movie? No, thanks. That's it. <laughs> that's the review. That's their assessment. And uh, I just found it fun. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, this is from Zombageddon. One star. Completely overrated. I felt nothing for these characters. The acting was played bad. And they kept making one bad alien movie after another with the exact same redundant plot line. I really hope they don't make any more alien movies. It's becoming an awful franchise like Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm glad they went in a new direction with Prometheus, which is a much better film than all of the alien movies combined. (laughs) That was for Justin. Yeah, I was going to say, Justin, you doing okay, buddy? Uh, My head hurts. (laughs) <laughs> uh, i saw that was one. that a real one was that a real review that's a hundred percent a real review and i saw it and was like that's going in that's oh, going God. in <laughs> prometheus is a better movie than all of the alien movies combined uh, let's get that cross stitched on something and get <laughs> <laughs> oh man uh let's see this is from saint just so i'm gonna assume this is justin bishop saint justin <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what do people see in this film is the title of this review and immediately that's the first line of the review what do people see in this film I am not one for horror films though I do like this alien stuff nothing happens in this film nothing we spent most of the time waiting and waiting for something to happen the movie could have been cut to half an hour easy there is a saying that says that fear is being scared of the unknown something that the X-Files has done really well Unfortunately, this film has tried to do this too, and it's gone too far. Rather than waiting for something to happen while on the edge of our seats, we wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. We barely get to see the alien, and the special effects are pretty poor. Sure, it was a long time ago, so we can't expect too much, but look at Star Wars, which came came out around the same time. They were much better than Alien, and Lucas had half the money. Alien is simply a boring movie that deserves no credit. That guy thinks that Star Wars was made for $5 million. Yeah. (laughs) This is from uh, Maz, uh, who says, Fear in its purest form. One star. Really, Scott has created only the truest form of fear in movie history. This film shows what, if you were in space, alone. No one can hear you. No one can save you. You are stuck with a monster tormenting you, knowing that you have no chance. It's hard to know that there is someone out for your blood, but for it to possibly be in the next room with nowhere else for you to go, you can make one wrong move resulting in your, yours and possibly your crew's death. How would you like that? That's why this remains only one of the scariest sci-fi movies ever made because in space, no one can hear you scream. That's a good review. That's a positive review. It felt like a Todd review. Because it 100% is a one-star review. <laughs> they gave it yeah, one that's star. That's a very positive. Said that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the whole thing, I was I, the whole time I'm listening going, yeah, all right, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I'm on board. Yeah. Right? Oh, okay. uh, <laughs> all right. Real quick, Lids. This is from Harry Plinkett. It says, Twisted. Scott is a lousy director. Great visual artist, but not good at directing. Giger is a degenerate who painted monsters and hellish images all his life. And the whole horror genre is, by and large, a pit of degeneracy. This film is an effective horror and does impress visually in many ways. It also has a memorable soundtrack. But at the end of the day, 
and it's just nasty. And I am sick and tired of nasty imagery poisoning my mind. Shove it in the toilet. Wow. <laughs> that is Harry Plinkett. And uh, finally, he didn't have a memorable soundtrack. I mean, I thought I the a, score was good. I, score. I mean, it was a score, but I, I wouldn't say it was. I mean, there were no like needle drops. Yeah. No, okay. To, like, all right. I was, bits in Arizona I just, at any point. Did I miss something? Uh, and this final review had no name on it, but it is one out of five stars. It says space robots think they're above space law and Sigourney Weaver has mother issues. Uh, what? <laughs> That's the whole review? That's the review. Wow. And that oh, has been somebody yeah. needs a nap. Wow. It sure has. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless of what these folks think, I, I think Alien is, in my opinion, one of the few like perfect movies. Like this, everything about this movie, every element, it's one of the few times where everything like comes together and just works well together like perfectly you've got O'Bannon's story it's it's ingenious in its simplicity I think Hill Walter Hill I mean I know O'Bannon likes to paint him as the bad guy but I think him punching up the dialogue gives the film like a realness and a naturalness that's lacking in a lot of sci-fi movies especially ones that were released before this mm. and O'Bannon said that uh he had a conversation with Hill where Hill said uh that he thought the whole point of this movie is evil corporations they created this whole situation had they not been greedy and needed to be involved in everything they would not have interfered and like found the alien blah 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 blah. which side note i think is a possible uh i mean it's, it's a thing in this movie i mean uh, it's the thing that the entire rest of the franchise is completely based on <laughs> right right exactly <laughs> if they left well enough alone o'bannon yep. to his credit giving props to Walter Hill said he did say to Hill, you're absolutely right. And you can imagine how I feel now butting up against a producer who thinks he's a writer. Wow. <laughs> 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 Man. Wow. Well, anyway, you see, you've also got, you know, Ridley Scott's visual artistry, which elevates the movie above its kind of intended B movie origins and then, of course, the design from H.R. Uh, Giger, which is completely iconic and one of the all-time great movie monsters. I think if any one of these elements hadn't been there, it wouldn't be the same movie. Even if, like, Hill had not come in and rewritten O'Bannon's script, this it would not be the movie that we got. This is like lightning in a bottle, you know? This is yeah. every single element coming together. If someone else had directed it, if they'd have brought in a different writer to rewrite O'Bannon's script, if they'd have brought in, if, if the studio had refused to use H.R. Giger's designs, if any of these things had not been there, Alien, as we know it, would not be, I think, the iconic movie that it is. But it's it's just one of those few times where every single element works in the film's favor. The cast, the music, the visuals, the story, every single thing works perfectly in sync. For the collaborative effort of the thing. I mean, it's all these people coming together that are so talented, that are so, so great at what they do. Just, it's... Like you, it's like you said. I mean, it's it's lightning in a bottle. It's it's just, just from the simplest moments to the greatest moments of the movie. It's just like everybody, the thought that was put into all of it. Uh, just, I don't know, man. I I think back on uh, there, there's so many fun stories for this movie. We can't get to everything, but just uh, like the idea that. Like O'Bannon, another thing he pitched to Cobb and, and Scott during the time was like the way that it 
the seats wobbled when they landed the ship. Like just that little detail I think is really cool. He's like, I was on a plane and I'm landing and he's I'm like, the turbulence hits you and this plane feels like it's going to fucking fall apart. And he's like, and then I'm watching like, we're doing alien. And I'm thinking of like every space movie just has the fucking ship. Just like land, like, doop, there you are. You're there. Everything's fine. And I'm like, nah, man, like what, what if it's not that way? What if you're not sure that every time you take a landing on some weird planet that maybe your whole fucking ship's going to fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> he's like so there, there's like that whole thing and uh i don't know scott going into detail about the the title sequences like you had the graphic designers that worked on the posters and the press work and stuff just like that title sequence that i think is still one of the most epic title sequences that's mm-hmm. ever happened just like mm. that it's like, weird it almost starts off as like hieroglyphs and stuff yeah. and that was yeah that was the idea was that it was to be there because scott had you know, say what you will about the movies that have come out since, but Scott had these ideas back at this movie of like what this all was. Where mm-hmm. are these aliens from? Those questions, you know, like yeah. uh, what's the space jockey? What's this? Where does it come from? He wanted to explore all that. You know, it wasn't, I don't know, you know, you could say it's good or bad, but he, the guy was interested in that stuff day one. He mm-hmm. was, and, and so the hieroglyphs for him hinted that there was like this civilization before (laughs) like you know like i I like the idea of like throwing those hints in there but i think that they made the right decision in not trying to explore that too much in this movie you know because of course this movie you know as we all know it produced a lot of sequels and spinoffs and whatnot and we'll discuss james cameron's aliens at some point down the road uh, and it's definitely the best of the sequels, I think, but uh, the, the rest of which range from just okay to downright terrible. But one of the things that the sequels do, including Cameron's, is they give us a lot more info about the aliens, about their origins, about their life cycle. But here, Scott and O'Bannon and Shusett, they they knew that the less info that they gave, the better. Uh, it makes the aliens scarier because we know so little about it. And this mm-hmm. is kind of the love, this is the Lovecraft angle again you know it's just what we can imagine is so much scarier than what they could give us that's why i think some of the sequels don't work that's why i think prometheus and alien covenant don't work is because they're just they're taking away the mystery and and therefore taking away what makes the alien so scary what's even back to that review where it talks about like nothing happens yada 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 yeah i mean the alien and the facehugger each probably get about four minutes of screen time. I think I saw somewhere. So, you know, that's all you get out of them. But I mean, Scott responds to criticism, like of, of nothing happening for like the alien. Does not show up for like an hour into the movie? And, uh, and Scott responds to that with like, that's the point. Nothing happens for like 45 minutes because, I want you to see the world that these workers function in. Yeah. This is, it's like a, it's a mining ship or refinery or some kind of freighter. And they're just waking up for some reason. And their day to day is fucking nothing. Yeah. And, you know, it's just standard day to day work practice. That's why it's so fucked up when <laughs> all of a sudden there's a monster on the ship. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So why they might be surprised by that. 
So let's talk a minute. Well, we've already gotten, I think we've got a good idea of where Todd stands on this one, but let's hear Todd's take. Uh, You know, I, I hesitate to call any movie perfect, but if you are going to, if you are going to use that, this is a good one to use it on. I mean, I think, I mean, we've already described certain uh, aspects of the movie as iconic. I think, honestly, I think the movie as a whole is iconic. It's just everything from, from everything Gary just said, you know, from the title sequences to uh, the feel of the sets, to the casting, to the prosthetics, to the design, everything. It was, it's one of those rare moments where the report card on this is nothing but A pluses. And, um, I do, I, I was, cause it's been a while since I've sat and watched this one. Um, I'm a big fan of the second one and it does tend to watch a little more like an action movie and, and and we'll get into that later. I'm sure. But I recall this one being a little bit, uh, I don't, I don't want to call it slow, but more deliberately paced. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was wondering if this would have the same punch you know this time around and i was just i was sucked in i was from the opening from the first frame i was sucked in immediately and in fact i think at one point uh the my wife and the other couple we were watching with uh i think a few uh sentences of discussion were had i was completely engrossed in what was going on i was just uh you know every 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 performance every turn uh, every glance from every member of the cast, every drip of KY coming off of that, <laughs> off of that <laughs> alien, uh, just yeah, I really, I really dug it. I mean, I'm a sci-fi guy anyway, but this is such an interesting. Oh, you're a horror guy. <laughs> Hold on, <laughs> I'm a big sci-fi guy anyway, but this is such an interesting exploration in a particular vein of the everyman horror sci-fi like the venn diagram on this thing is really fascinating and it's just so good i I really enjoyed it and it it makes me want to you know when we're done recording go watch the other the other three (laughs) yeah i watched all four of the originals uh, a couple months ago actually i just got on a kick Mm. and watched them all i like them all to varying degrees of those those first four um Alien 3 being my least favorite. I actually like, I actually am in the minority of liking Alien Resurrection more than Alien 3. Oh. Uh, I, I like Alien Resurrection. I think it's, it's silly and fun. <laughs> but uh, but the, the through line through all of those, of course, is Sigourney Weaver. And here, this is, when you watch Sigourney Weaver in this one, you're seeing a movie star being born. Like, it's not often that you can point to a movie and go, this is where that person became a movie star. And yeah. this is it. I mean, Ripley is one of the great screen heroes, action hero, horror heroes, whatever you want to call it. One of the the first female action heroes. And I'm not sure that how much intention there was there for, because obviously this was not written as a woman initially, but the way the character is, regardless of how it's written by casting Sigourney Weaver in the role, it kind of becomes a, a feminist film. And I have to think that Ridley Scott, at least, was doing that intentionally mm. uh, because if you read the script or you, you watch the movie, the men 
on the Nostromo are pretty fucking useless. Like they, they just make a series of bad decisions. Uh, had they listened to Ripley, most of them would have probably been okay. Maybe not Kane, but the rest of them probably would have been okay. Uh, mm-hmm. If they had just listened to Ripley when she tried to keep them off the ship, when they, she tried to keep them from bringing this thing on the ship, it would have been a much more boring movie, but everyone would have lived. You know, to jump ahead to something that we normally do, and I, I the reason I want to do this is just because I I want to get this out there uh, before I forget about it. I actually just finished reading their uh, William Gibson's unproduced script for Alien 3 was given over to IDW some years ago and turned into a, a miniseries, a graphic uh, or graphic novel. And I just finished reading it. And if you if you dig the first one, watch the second one, and then go read uh, William Gibson's Aliens Three. It is okay. it is it's a comic. Lot. It is a comic. It's only it's only five or six issues. Uh, but I mean, you can find it on Comicsology. It, it is worth a read in light of the first two because this was written as a direct response a direct continuation of alien and aliens so if you're not a fan of aliens three as it as it is on screen you may want to check out william gibson's um unproduced aliens three script by idw it's it's worth a read okay cool uh, is it on? Is there a, a trade version out yet? Yes, there is a trade version. Uh, that's how I read it. Um, okay. And they, I mean, it's all together, and there's a there's some uh, sketches in the back, so you get a little bit of a bonus content and seeing how they, you know, put everything together. It's 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 worth uh, it's worth a couple bucks. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So this movie, by the way, it passes it passes uh, that Bechdel test. Mm. You know. Yeah, the Bechdel test. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think even the column that it came from originally, Alison Bechdel wrote like uh, Dykes to watch out for was her column. And that was where it was first proposed, like the character of the column, like uh, talks about a a movie that treats its female characters as equals. And Mm. the rule is three parts uh, has to have at least two female characters who Number two, have a conversation with each other that number three isn't about one of the male characters uh, in the film. Uh, and so that became the Bechdel test. But the character in the column says that the last movie they remember seeing uh, that fit that criteria was Alien. Uh, so anyway, that, that's uh, awesome. Yeah. So this is uh this this passes that that test so just uh for props there uh, also worth mentioning uh two things i found interesting one at the premiere of the movie uh, re- uh religious folk were very upset uh there was a big prop of the xenomorph outside and they set fire to it what uh, because they believed it was the work of the devil <laughs> i think it was jewish rabbis that did that oh maybe it was jewish rabbis really either way yeah. that marks successful that oh, marks yeah. a successful film to me. Yeah, when you when you make the, the church people angry, yeah. <laughs> you're doing it right. Also, ridiculously, and I, I know that we have more familiarity with this, but I didn't realize it even started with Alien. But after the success that Star Wars was having with action figures, Kidder made an alien toy. 
after this movie yeah. for Christmas of 1979. Um, <laughs> it I mean, was like was an 18 inch, like alien, like xenomorph. It didn't have like the crew or any of that stuff, but it was the straight up like Giger xenomorph design. And uh, it, it was apparently pretty breakable. So parents complained and it got pulled. And it's like, I mean, it goes for like box versions of it go for like a thousand bucks now. But Jeez. yeah, I mean, that was a thing in the 80s and 90s, you know, because uh, I remember buying Robocop toys and Terminator mm-hmm. 2 toys. And those are definitely not kids movies, you know, so. <laughs> well, I feel like I read somewhere then. this was like the first where they took like a rated R movie and yeah. <laughs> started making toys out of it. Yeah, I mean, that which is so weird about this movie because there's like there's a ton of sexual imagery in this movie. You know, I mean, it's that toy is of the, the xenomorph, the alien is again, it's a big dick. I mean, the, the Giger stuff is pretty obvious, but then you got scenes like the one Gary mentioned earlier, where Ash tries to choke Ripley with a rolled up newspaper, you know, like that's a very uh, like psychosexual image there. Or the fact that Ash is covered with, a thick white liquid, you know, <laughs> like right. I, I think that was fully intentional. And I, I mean, hell, the alien itself is covered with lube. The whole movie, the entire movie is covered with KY jelly. Yep. And then to take it even further, the like sexual imagery of the film, the movie sh- kind of, sh- it shows what happens when a man is the victim of non-consensual sex. That's what the face hugger is. I mean, mm. this was actually intentional on Dan O'Bannon's part because he wanted to kind of subvert the the rape revenge movies that were popular at the time. Stuff like I Spit on Your Grave and They Call Her One Eye movies, you know, the, like we've talked about before. He was kind of trying to do something else by showing the man as the victim because, again, he wanted to make the men in the audience feel very uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, but I saw stories like during the early development of that, that O'Bannon and uh, Shusset, when they were working on this, they, they said they came to like an impasse of like, how does the alien get aboard the ship? That was like the discussion they were trying to answer. And Shusset had come up with the idea, uh, and maybe even as a joke, said the alien fucks one of them. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so that eventually they worked that into the facehugger concept. And, yeah. uh, and then... Yeah, O'Bannon had the idea of like, well, now we try to take the image of like a man getting raped and impregnated and uh, that that that, so they became very adamant that the first victim has to be a man to like take from that horror cliche of the woman victim, you know, so that that was very much part of that discussion. Wow. I mean, Dan O'Bannon, despite the fact that there were a lot of changes made uh, to his script. You can't, that doesn't discount his significant contributions to the film. I mean, again, this was his story. It was his concept. Uh, it was his, it was a screenplay originally. It, it was him that came up with the chest burster scene and alien would not be alien without the chest burster scene. And it was him that got HR Giger involved and alien would not be alien without HR Giger's designs. But Dan O'Bannon never really received the credit he deserved. I mean, even critics who liked the film when it came out, knocked the screenplay for being too thin. I would argue that its simplicity is actually one of its strengths, but at the time people were saying that it was too thinly written, which I think that there's, I think that's completely wrong. I think you get plenty of, I think you get to know the characters very well enough because of the performances and what you get from them to care about whether or not they live or die, uh, which I I think is what you need out of a horror movie. It's so crazy to me to think that that's like, 
I don't know, because I, I was reading this whole article about, too, how, you know, like producers, that's not even what they're looking at most of the time. Well, like they have professional readers that like tell them what a movie is sometimes because they get so many screenplays. Right. Or at least during this time, this is how it was. And so the, the reason I had found it because it was the readers would generally find like, what's the easy way to explain this movie? And so for this one, it was uh, the elevator pitch. Yeah, like the elevator pitch. But like for this one, it was like the summary for everybody was it's Jaws, but it's face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and so, David Geiler, he who produced and, and co-wrote the uh, screenplay with Walter Hill, he even diminished O'Bannon's contributions in the press uh, after the film came out. He Even if you watch him in interviews, like the Beast Within documentary, which me and Gary, I think, both watched that's on uh, some of the the special features on the Blu-ray DVD. Uh, David Geiler's kind of, he's kind of a dick, honestly, but he really kind of underplays how much O'Bannon contributed to this. When if it had not been for O'Bannon, you guys wouldn't have got a script on your desk in the first place. That was his script. You guys rewrote his script, but you wouldn't have had anything to rewrite without him. You know, so that, I think that's a dick move, to be honest. Uh, And the studio even took, O'Bannon and Shusett's name off of the poster at first, but then they were forced to put it on after arbitration with uh, the Writers Guild. They had, but they even tried to take their name off, even though they were given screenplay credit. And the bad press over this dispute and the fact that O'Bannon didn't show up in the film's uh, promotion definitely hurt his career. Like he was not being well associated with this film. And it hurt his career, and it also meant that he wasn't invited back to work on the sequels. Mm. So then, going back to O'Bannon's feud with his old pal John Carpenter, uh, John Carpenter told the press that O'Bannon had just ripped off it, the terror from beyond space. He called Alien stylish, but more repulsive than scary. And O'Bannon then, of course, he bashed Halloween. He said, uh, quote, you can make that in a weekend with some teenagers. It's kind of nifty in a minor key. Halloween is okay. You sons of bitch. Well, you guys, (laughs) it's too late to kiss and make up now. But God, that is so wrong. It's a feud. They're feuding. (laughs) Oh, I hate it. Uh, So What's ironic here is that those two films, though, Halloween and Alien, are very similar, honestly. They're, they're both about this relentless killer that sort of represents evil personified. They don't have any motivation. You know, Michael Myers in the first Halloween, which I, we will definitely cover on this show one day. We covered it on our old show if you want to hear our thoughts on it, but we'll cover it in more detail one day. But Michael Myers has no real reason for stalking the girls that he's stalking in the first Halloween movie. He's they're just there. And the same thing with this movie, you know, Kane happens along messes with an egg and he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time, which fucks things for everyone else on the Nostromo. Uh, it's not because they were being hunted or the alien, they have something that the alien wants. It's just what the alien does. The alien kills. It's what Michael Myers does. He just kills. So it's nature. It's nature. Yeah. It's killing indiscriminately. <laughs> yeah, that's just what they do. So it's it's kind of ironic that they were kind of feuding in the press over these two movies when in reality, the movies are very, very similar. <laughs> and very, very good. Both of They're them. They're both really good. They're both great <laughs> movies. Yeah. Uh, so so it's, it's unfortunate that despite creating one of the most iconic screen monsters of all time, 
Dan O'Bannon never really got his due, even from Alien, the movie that he's most well associated with. He didn't really get to cash in on that, despite the fact that the movie, you know, went, it won an Oscar. <laughs> it, it won an Oscar for Best Special Effects. He didn't even go to the ceremony. Dan O'Bannon didn't go to the Oscar ceremony. It, it, it should have made his career, but instead, once again, Hollywood just kind of ignored him. You know, they just, nobody really gave him his, they, they thought he was a hack, I guess. I don't know. I, I mean, maybe someone like Walter Hill had more sway because he had had more produced screenplays. And so when he said that O'Bannon was a shit writer, people believed it and didn't want to give him any more work. So it's, it's not like he was the next hot screenwriter in Hollywood after this, like he should have been. Mm. It's tough because he doesn't ever help himself. It doesn't seem like, but mm. he also no, deserves he so much more credit that he yeah. gets. And yeah. so I, I you can see a, some of the things that irritate him. Yeah. yeah. So the next film with his name on the credits would come out two years after Alien. It's a film that reunited him with his Alien co-writer, Ron Shusett. And that film, which is what we're going to discuss next week uh, for part three in this series, was 1981's Dead and Buried. Uh, it's a fun film. It's one that, you know, a little less, well, a lot less known than Alien, but, and I haven't seen it in years, but I remember enjoying it. So we'll, we'll discover uh, if that still holds the case, if that's still the case and, you know, see if we can find some fun behind the scenes stories for you guys on that one. There's so many more things to discuss with this film. It drives me crazy <laughs> that like all of the stories that like I, uh, like the cat, how they got the cat to hiss. They put, hit a, Doberman or a German Shepherd behind a wall. And so then the cat starts to come towards Harry Dean Stanton and then they pull the wall up and it's a German Shepherd and the cat hisses and runs away. And uh, just uh, little stupid stories like that. I just think it's so much fun. And then the ideas that Scott had that he's going to later play out and to much to Justin's chagrin <laughs> play out just about what the space jockey is and uh, what the idea was with the carrier that the eggs are on and and that whole thing. And uh, I loved, I don't know. There, It feels like a whole discussion for the alien franchise that like when I was watching the OG original commentary for the film, he's talking about, he always, from like day one, it sounds like he thought of the aliens are a weapon and they get dropped into an area and they kind of capture whatever they integrate with whatever they're around. And so do you remember like, was it the late 80s, early 90s where there were like alien toys where you could get like the gorilla alien and yeah. the tiger alien? <laughs> and like, it was yeah. just like the alien. I mean, thing. even in what was it? One of the sequels had alien dogs in it, right? Was that Alien 3? Oh, maybe that's right. Yeah. Oh, it's oh, probably yeah. all after Alien 3. I totally forgot. It's been so long since Alien 3. We're watching through them right now, the wife and I, and uh, Alien 3 always fits right there with Highlander 2 for me as movies. I I have seen once but started like 15 times each. <laughs> like, Are you watching the assembly cut? I, I think I'm gonna watch the assembly cut. Yeah. Cause I was yeah. I, I, I was doing this research earlier when I was trying to find out, you know, like what what's because the fucking anthology thing has, you know, the OG and the special editions of each. So mm -hmm. I'm like, well which one's better you know, some I would recommend the assembly cut on part three. Yeah. So part three, it sounds like Fincher, you know, he dropped out either way, but at least in the assembly cut, they just like tried to 
piece it together a little bit more to what he had yeah. intended. And uh, he still doesn't claim any of it, it sounds like. Yeah. But uh, anyway, it's at least more to what he was working on at the time. And supposedly on Reddit and stuff, people say it's a more coherent story than the original. I think it's a little bit better. It's still not great, but but it, it's better than theatrical. Um, I think it's time to wrap this up, fellas. Two Wait episodes a minute. Let's on talk one. about one other thing. Gary, <laughs> we have been talking for four hours about this movie. <laughs> but I did want to say that Ridley Scott, by the way, he did fight the studio to get that last act in there. This movie was supposed to end. I, I just found this fascinating. It was supposed to end with her escaping the ship. And that's that's where it ended. And Ridley Scott never felt like that was the end. So he fought for what he called the fourth act, which was Ridley on the shuttle and the aliens still being there. Yeah. Which is a great finale. Honestly, he made a good decision on that part. Yeah, Mm. I agree. And uh, first of all, I don't know what size panties those are. She's wearing, but they don't cover her ass crack. Uh, (laughs) So that's point, point, point a point two is (laughs) point a and point two. (laughs) Point two is he, uh, I always wondered what was going on with the alien. there, just like cubbied up in that little hole. Like he's just hanging like, out in the air, hanging out in the, uh, amongst he's camouflaged. He's trying to camouflage himself. He's very slow until she notices him and he's still kind of lazy about it. Supposedly the concept was going to be that the alien is transforming himself into an egg. Like he's going Uh back. He's it's like some kind of evolutionary thing. Like it's going to be like eventually making itself into an egg. That was like a second thing to what Scott wanted to do. And Scott's original ending. He said was that Ripley shoots the Xenomorph with the grappling hook and it doesn't do anything. And the Xenomorph just lunges at her and tears her head off. And then (laughs) <laughs> and then it goes to the cobs and you see it fully integrating and it's typing on the computer. And then it uses Dallas's voice to say, uh, I'm signing off or something like that. At wow. the end of the uh, movie. That's stupid. I'm glad they didn't do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it was something like that. So anyway, I just wanted to share that just for everybody who stuck around with us. Thank you so much. I, I will stop talking about alien now. All right. Well, let's let's uh, call Except this for one, this guys. one thing. No, I'm oh, just Jesus Christ. Gary. <laughs> <laughs> well, where can you guys be found on the Internet for our listeners? I am at this is Gary Horde. And I also have a wrestling show. If you are interested, it's at T.I.P.W. show. It's this is pro wrestling. And we are we're, we're we're doing a similar thing to what we're doing with the movies right now. But we're doing it with wrestling. So if you've ever been interested in pro wrestling and where it comes from, what it's all about, I think we tell the story in a very fun way. And uh, you can uh, you can listen to that at TIPW show. You can find all the links and the bios and stuff there. We just talked about a guy named the Master Marvel. It's full of impersonations by me is what that show is, <laughs> because for some reason, everybody leads on me to make impersonations of the people that we're talking about. So I had to find like clever ways to, to discuss them. <laughs> So I have to discuss about this one guy, like Joe Stecker, who was a champion back in the day, but he practices leg scissors, which was his finisher on farm animals. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So then I get to pretend to be Joe Stecker. He sounds a lot like this. I'm doing my leg scissors. Don't get nasty now. Justin, I don't do nothing nasty with no pigs. You, you know why you don't do nothing nasty with no pigs, Justin? No, I don't. <laughs> because they'll squeal on you. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, uh, <laughs> and anyway, and then my other character, we just discussed the first masked wrestler who was the masked Marvel, and he's just pretty much like, hey, everybody, I'm here. I'm the masked Marvel. Mask me anything. <laughs> <laughs> anyway all right todd go Uh, ahead i'm sorry anyway (laughs) i'm sorry Uh, i'm at mr todd a davis on all the socials and uh if you like star trek i have a podcast covering the entire star trek franchise in chronological order uh it's called computer resume podcast and you can find that on apple and spotify and google and on social media at computer resume yeah, I'm at Justin underscore Bishop. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, or no, I am on Facebook, but don't send me a friend request. I'm on Twitter, <laughs> Instagram, and I don't want people. He's all he's all set. He's all set with friends, folks. <laughs> I'm good. I have he's the one that I need. <laughs> I mean, but I'll you can, accept your friend you request. I just probably won't see it for like four weeks. But <laughs> uh, but I am on Twitter and Instagram and Letterbox. You can you can friend request me on all those places, and you can find the podcast at cinema underscore shock on twitter instagram we are also on facebook and we do encourage you to like us there and uh, you can also rate review share this with your friends especially if they like alien apparently because we can't stop talking about it and uh until next week i'm just sorry i'm just thrown back by how you big leaked everybody on facebook uh may the wings of liberty (laughs) may the wings of liberty never lose a feather (laughs) How I big big leagued? Yeah, big league like big league in them. What does that mean? That just means you're like big time and like you're you're uh I don't know. You know I where just, I got the term from? If you really want to know, it's because apparently before this overly PC culture. No, this sounds like I'm like trying to be anti woke. But supposedly this was a thing in wrestling back in the day. Like Randy Orton. So it's not that far back in the day. Like Randy Orton would walk into a writer's room when new writers got hired and he would stick his hand down the front of his tights and fondle his balls and then like reach out to shake hands with one of the writers <laughs> like one of the new writers like hey how's it going i'm randy orton and if wow. they didn't shake his hand he's like what are you like big league in me you think you're too good to talk to randy orton i'm <laughs> <laughs> not sure how that applies to me not wanting friend requests from people i don't actually know i'm just saying that's where the big league term <laughs> came from i'm not saying you're like rubbing your balls to people but if you do get lucky enough to that's why he doesn't want you to add him on facebook because it's it's all like private it's uh it's just videos of justin rubbing his balls be excellent to each other <laughs> jonesy has the keys uh. Join Justin Bishop's OnlyFans. 